a fight is going to on the inside. He said to the boy, It is terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. An old Cherokee was, chief, was teaching his grandson about life. He went on to say, One is evil. He is in anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, self-doubt, and ego. The other is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person too. The grandson then asks his grandpa, Which wolf will win? The old chief simply replied, The one you feed. The one you feed. That's why I love AA meetings. Anything's positive because I get to munch on those words. And it makes a difference in my recovery. May God bless you guys. Read this over and over again. Have a great day. Give them heaven. Good morning. Welcome to the Trudgers meeting of Alcoholic Anonymous, 7 a.m. out in the outdoors at the park. My name is Fernando, an alcoholic and your secretary for this meeting. Let us open this meeting with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. The AA Preamble. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We're self-supporting through our own contribution. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to, to uh, respond to any of these. Oh, I lost it. Um, but we're self-supporting through our own contributions. Okay, and I'm going to be reading chapter 5 and how it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these we balk, we thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. 
Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures avail us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We ask his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol that allows it to become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitting it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Many of us exclaim, what an order, I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect coherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism and see that God could and would if he were sought. All right, now, now I'm going to be reading the uh, 12 Traditions from page 562 in our big book. It says, one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Two, for a group purpose, there's but one ultimate authority. A loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for AA membership is the desire to stop drinking. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Six, an AA group ought never endorse, finance, or land the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprise. Less problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. 
Nine, AA as such, I'd never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always to maintain personal anonymity at level of press, radio, and films. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. Every remind us to place principles before personality. All right, AA is... And now for our seventh tradition, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, is self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Okay, today we're going to be reading uh, the story on page 328. It's called Crossing the River of Denial. She finally realized that when she enjoyed her drinking, she couldn't control it. And when she controlled it, she couldn't enjoy it. Denial is the most cunning, baffling, and powerful part of my disease, the disease of alcoholism. When I look back now, it's hard to imagine I didn't see a problem with my drinking. But instead of seeing the truth when all of the yets, as in that hasn't happened to me yet, started happening, I just kept lowering my standards. Dad was an alcoholic, and my mother drank throughout her pregnancy, but I don't blame my parents for my alcoholism. Kids with a lot of worse upbringing than mine did not turn out alcoholic, while some that had it a lot better did. In fact, I stopped wondering why me a long time ago. It's like a man standing on a bridge in the middle of a river with his pants on fire, wondering why his pants on are on fire. It doesn't matter. Just jump in. And that is exactly what I did with AA once I finally crossed the river of denial. I grew up feeling as if I was the only thing keeping my family together. This compounded my, by the fear of not being good enough was a lot of pressure for a little girl. Everything changed with my first drink at the age of 16. All the fear, shyness, and disease evaporated with that first burning swallow of bourbon straight from the bottle during a liquor cabinet raid at the slumber party. I got drunk, blacked out, threw up, had dry heaves, was sick to death the next day, and I knew I would do it again. For the first time, I felt part of a group without having to be perfect to get approval. I went through the college. I went through college on scholarships, work-study programs, and student loans. Classes and work kept me too busy to do much drinking. Plus, I was engaged to a boy who was not an alcoholic. However, I broke off our relationship during my senior year after discovering drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Companions to my best friend, alcohol, I proceeded to explore all that the late 60s and early 70s offered. After backpacking around Europe, I decided to settle in a large city. Well, I made it all right to full-blown alcoholism. A big city is a great place to be an alcoholic. Nobody notices. Three martini lunches, drink after work, and a nightcap at the corner bar was just a normal day. And didn't everyone have blackouts? I used to joke about how great blackouts were because you saved so much time in transit. One minute you're here, the next minute you're there. In retrospect, making jokes just laughing off helped solidify my unfaltering denial. 
Another trick was selecting companions who drank just a little bit more than I did. Then I could always point to their problem. One such companion led to my first arrest. If the driver of the car had only pulled over when the police lights flashed, we would have been fine. If, when I had practically talked our way out of it, the driver had kept his mouth shut, we should have been fine. But no, he started babbling about how he was in rehab. I got off with a misdemeanor, and for years I completed discounted the rest because it was all his fault. I simply ignored that I had been drinking all day. One morning while I was at work, a hospital called, telling me to get there quickly. My father was there, dying of alcoholism. He was 60. I had seen him in hospitals before, but this time was different. With stomach sorely distended, swollen with fluids, his non-functioning kidneys and liver could no longer process. He lingered for three weeks. Alcoholic death is very painful and slow. Seeing him die of alcoholism convinced me I could never become an alcoholic. I knew too much about the disease, had too much self-knowledge to ever fall prey. I shipped his body back home without attending the funeral. I could not even help my grandmother bury her only son because by then I was inextricably involved in an affair mired in sex and alcohol. Plummeting into the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization that that relation became, I had my first drunk driving arrest. It terrified me. I could have killed someone, driving in a total blackout. I came to handing my driver's license to the patrol man. I swore it would never happen again. Three months later, it happened again. What I didn't know then was that when I put alcohol in my body, I am powerless over how much and with whom I drink. All good intentions drown in denial. I remember joking about how most people spent their entire lives without ever seeing the inside of a jail. And here, a woman of my stature had been arrested three times. But I would think I'd never really done hard times, never actually spent the night in jail. Then I met Mr. Wrong, my husband-to-be, and all that changed. I spent my wedding night in jail, like every other time. However, it wasn't my fault. There we were, still in our wedding clothes. If he had just kept his mouth shut after the police arrived, we would have been fine. I had been convinced that he had attacked the valet. Our wedding money was missing. Actually, he thought the valet had stolen the marijuana we were going to smoke. In reality, I was so drunk I had lost it. During the interrogation of the valet in the restaurant parking lot, my husband became so violent, the officers put him in the back of the patrol car. When he tried to kick out the rear window, the policeman retaliated. I pleaded with the officers. The second policeman arrived, and both bride and groom were taken to jail. I was then that the it was then when the stolen marijuana cigarettes were discovered. To my horror, in central booking, as three cataloged my belongings, as they cataloged my belongings, I was arrested for three felonies, including drunk and disorderly and two misdemeanors. But it was all my husband's fault. I had practically nothing to do with it. He had a drinking problem. I stayed in that abusive marriage for nearly seven years and continued to focus on his problem. Toward the end of the marriage and my misguided attempts to set a good example for him, plus he was drinking too much of my vodka, I mandated no booze in the house. Still, why should I be denied a cocktail after returning home from a stressful day at the office? 
just because he had a problem. So I began hiding my vodka in the bedroom and still did not see anything wrong with my behavior. He was my problem. I accepted a transfer with a promotion, yes. My professional life was still climbing. Shortly after the divorce, now I was sure my problems were over, except that I brought me I brought me with me. Once alone in a new place, my drinking really took off. I did not, did not have to be a good example anymore. For the first time, I realized that perhaps my drinking was getting a bit out of hand, but I knew you'd drink too if you had my stress, recent divorce, new home, new job, didn't know anyone, and an acknowledgement progressive disease that was destroying me. Finally, I made some friends who drank just as I did. Our drinking was disguised as fishing trips and chicken cook-offs, but they were really excuses for week-long binges. After a day of drinking disguises as softball, I nicked an old woman's fender driving home. Of course, it was not my fault. She pulled out in front of me. Let that incident occur at dusk, and I had been drinking since 10 a.m. Had nothing to do with it. My alcoholism had taken me to such depths of denial and heights of arrogance that I waited for the police so they knew it was her fault too. Well, it didn't take them long to figure it out. Once again, pulled from the car, handcuffed behind my back. I was taken to jail, but it wasn't my fault. The old bra shouldn't have been allowed on the road. I told myself, she's my problem. The judge sentenced me to six months in alcoholic anonymous. And I was outraged. But now I had been arrested five times, but all I could see was a hard partier, not an alcoholic. Didn't you people know the difference? So I started going to those stupid meetings. I, I, and I identify myself as an alcoholic, so you'll sign my court card, even though I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. I had a six-figure income, owned my own home. I had a car phone. I used ice cubes. For God's sake, everyone knows an alcoholic, at least one that had to go to AA, is a skid row bum in a dirty raincoat drinking from a brown paper bag. So each time you read the part in Chapter 5 in the big book that says, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go into any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. My ears closed. We had the disease of alcoholism. And the last thing I wanted was to be an alcoholic. Eventually, you talk about my feelings in the meetings of Alcoholic Anonymous until I could no longer close my ears. I heard women, beautiful, successful women in recovery, talk about the things they had done while drinking. And I would think, I did that, or I did worse than that. Then I began to see the miracle that happened only in AA people who would nearly crawl in the doors. Sick and broken, and... and who in a few weeks of meetings and not drinking one day at a time would get their help back, find a little job and friends who really cared, and then discovered a God in their lives. But the most compelling part of AA, the part that made me want to try this sober thing, was the laughter, the pure joy of the laughter that I heard only from sober alcoholics. Still, the thought of getting sober terrified me. I hated the woman I had become, a compulsive obsession daily drinker, not dressing on weekends, always afraid of running out of alcohol. I started thinking about a drink by noon and I would have leave the office earlier and earlier, or promising myself that I wouldn't drink that night. I invariably find myself in front of the refrigerator with a drink in my hand, vowing tomorrow I won't drink tomorrow. 
despite all of it, but at least it was familiar. I had no idea what sobriety felt like, and I could not imagine life without alcohol. I had reached that terrifying jumping off point where I couldn't drink anymore, but I just couldn't not drink. For almost 23 years, I had done something nearly every day all my life to change reality to one degree or another, yet I had to try this sober thing. To this day, I am amazed at the people who get sober before the holidays. I couldn't even attempt it until after the Super Bowl, one last blow-up party when I swore I wouldn't get drunk. When I put alcohol in my body, I lose the ability to choose how much I drank, and Super Bowl Sunday that year was no different. I ended up on someone's couch instead of my own bed and was sick to death. All the next day at work that week, I had to go to a hockey game. It was a work event, so I tried to really watch my drinking consuming. Only two large cups of beer, which for me wasn't even enough to catch the bus. And that was the beginning of my spiritual awakening. Sitting near the ice, frustrated and pondering the fact that two tall beers didn't give me any relief, something in my head, and I know it wasn't me, said, well, so why bother? Why bother? At that moment, I knew what the big book meant about the great obsession of every abnormal drinker being to somehow someday control and enjoy his drinking. On Super Bowl Sunday, when I enjoyed it, I couldn't control it. And on the hockey game, when I controlled it, I couldn't enjoy it. There was no more denying that I was an alcoholic. What an epiphany. Epiphany. I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous the next night, knowing I wanted what you had. I sat in that cold metal chair, just as I had for the past five months, and read step one on the wall for the hundredth time. But this time, I asked with all my heart for God to help me, and a strange thing happened. A physical sensation came over me, like a wave of pure energy, and I felt the presence of God in that dingy little room. I went home that night, and for the first time, uh, I went home that night, and for the first time in years, I did not have to open the cupboard with a half-gallon jug of vodka in it. Not that night or any other since. God has restored me to sanity, and I took two, two steps the very moment I surrendered, and I accepted my powerlessness over alcohol and the unmanageability of my life. I attended at least one meeting every day. I emptied ashtrays, washed coffee cups, and on that day I took a 30-day chip. A friend took me to an AA get-together. I was in absolute awe of the power of 2,000-plus sober alcoholics holding hands saying the final prayer together. And I wanted to stay sober more than I wanted life itself. Returning home, I begged God on my knees to help me stay sober one more day. I told God to take the house, take the job, take everything, if that's what we needed for me to stay sober. That day, I learned two things, the real meaning of step three, and to always be careful what I pray for. I begged God on my knees to help me stay sober one more day. I told God to take the house, take the job, take everything it, if that what was needed for me to stay sober. That day I learned two things, the real meaning of step three and to always be careful what I pray for. After five months of sobriety, I lost that figure job with the firm. The wreckage of my past had caught up to me and I was out of work for a year. That job.
would have been lost whether I was drunk or sober. But thank goodness I was sober or I probably would have killed myself. When I was drinking, the prestige of that job was my self-worth. When I was drinking, the prestige of the job was my self-worth, the only thing that made me worth loving. Now I was starting to love myself because AA had unconditional love me until I could. At five months, I realized that the world might never build a shrine to the fact that I was sober. I understood that it was not the world's job to understand my disease. Rather, it was my job to work my program and not drink no matter what. At nine months of sobriety, I lost a big house that I bought just to prove to you I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. In between five and nine months, my house was robbed. I had a biopsy on my cervix, and I had my heart broken. And the miracle of all, of all miracles was that I didn't have to drink over any of it. This from a woman who had had to drink over all of it. I was so unique and so arrogant when I got here. I thank God knew that he had to show me early on the that there was nothing a drink would make better. He showed me that his love and the power of the steps and the fellowship could keep me from picking up a drink. One day at a time, sometimes one hour at a time, no matter what a drink would not bring back the job, the house, or the human, so why bother? I found everything I had ever looked for in Alcoholics Anonymous. I used to thank God for putting AA in my life. Now I thank AA for putting God in my life. I found my tribe, the social architecture that fulfills every need for camaraderie and convivability. I learned how to live. When I asked how I could find self-esteem, you told me by doing worthwhile acts. You explained the big book had no chapters entitled Into Thinking or Into Feeling, only into action. I found plenty of opportunity for action. In AA, I could be just as busy and helpful to others as I wanted to be as a sober woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was never a joiner, but I got deeply involved in AA service because you told me if I did, I would never have to drink again. You said as long as... I put AA first in my life. Everything that I put second will be first class. This has proved to be true over and over again. So I continue to put AA and God first and everything I ever lost was returned many times over. The career that I lost had been restored with even greater success. The house that I lost had been replaced by a, by a townhouse that is just the right size for me. So here I am. Sober, so here I am, sober, successful, serene, just a few of the gifts of the program for surrendering, suiting up and showing up for life every day. Good days and bad days, reality is a wild ride, and I wouldn't miss it for the world. I don't question how this program works, I just trust in my God, stay involved in a service, go to lots of meetings, work with others, work with others, and practice these principles of the steps to the best of my willingness each day. I don't know which of these keeps me sober, and I am not about to try to find out. It worked for quite a few days now, so I think I'll try it again tomorrow. All right, that's uh, Crossing the River of Denial. 
self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations with huge baskets of grapple us. We will suddenly realize that God has given us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if you work for them. Work, 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 work. 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 So on Saturdays, we do the big book study. Um, I've now asked a friend to tell me what page we're on. We are on page 101, second paragraph at the end, so our rule is not to avoid. You guys want me to just start? All right, I'm Kayla, I'm an alcoholic. So our rule is not to avoid a place where there is drinking, if we have a legitimate reason for being there. That includes bars, nightclubs, dances, receptions, weddings, even plain ordinary whoopee parties. To a person who has had experience with an alcoholic, this may seem like tempting providence, but it isn't. You will note that we made an important qualification. Therefore, ask yourself on each occasion, have I any good social, business, or personal reason for going to this place? Or am I expecting to steal a little vicarious pleasure from the atmosphere of such places? If you answer these questions satisfactorily, you need have no apprehension. Go or stay away, whichever seems best. But be sure you are on solid spiritual ground before you start and that your motive is going in going is thoroughly good. Do not think of what you will get out of the occasion. Think of what you can bring to it. But if you are shaky, you had better work with another alcoholic instead. Why sit with a long face in places where there is drinking, sighing about the good old days? If it is a happy occasion, Try to increase the pleasure of those there. If a business occasion, go and attend to your business enthusiastically. If you are with a person who wants to eat in a bar, by all means, go along. Let your friends know they are not to change their habits on your account. At a proper time and place, explain to all your friends why alcohol disagrees with you. If you do this thoroughly, few people will ask you to drink. While you were drinking, you were withdrawing from life little by little. Now you are getting back into the social life of this world. Don't start to withdraw again just because your friends drink liquor. Cool. Pass. I'm Josh, I'm alcoholic. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives, and God will keep you unharmed. <coughs> Many of us keep liquor in our homes. We often need it to carry green recruits through a severe hangover. Some of us still serve it to our friends, provided they are not alcoholic. But some of us think we should not serve liquor to anyone. We never argue this question, 
We feel that each family in the light of their own circumstances ought to decide for themselves. We are careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. Experience, <coughs> excuse me, experience shows that such an attitude is not helpful to anyone. Every new alcoholic looks for this spirit among us and is immensely relieved when he finds that we are not witch burners. A spirit of intolerance might repel alcoholics whose lives, have been, whose lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. We would not even do the... We would not even do the cause of temperate drinking any good, for not one drinker in a thousand lives to be told anything about alcohol by any by one who hates it. Someday we hope that Alcoholics Anonymous will help the public to a better realization of the gravity of the alcoholic problem, but we shall be of little use if our attitude is one of bitterness or hostility. Drinkers will not stand for it. After all, our problems were of our own making. Bottles were only a symbol. Besides, we have stopped fighting any. Besides, we have stopped fighting anybody or anything. We have to. Pass. Herbie, I'm alcoholic. Herbie, Herbie. 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 Uh, I like that first part there, where you know where you could uh, drink with others. Because uh, this past year, I went on a cruise for a 14 day cruise. So, um, you know, everybody's drinking on that ship. You know, I mean, you, I mean, I guess I could have jumped overboard and found enjoy the cruise like everybody else. But they have an itinerary on those boats, so check it out. That means what's going on for the week or what for the day, actually for the day. And I found some friends with Bill. Cool. Yeah. So everybody was going to drinking at five o'clock in the evening because we went to dinner. Everybody, our group together, we would always go to dinner together. And um, I made myself at home with people that I never knew from in Adam. You know, seven people, six people sometimes. You know, and I felt quite right at home because I mean I'm an alcoholic, and I'm with alcoholic people. So I stayed away from that, you know. Unfortunately, you know, you, in the evening, you know, everybody wants to go dancing, you know, cut the rug a little bit. But you know, I still had a good time because I didn't have to drink. Everybody, I mean, dancing, wrong. No, I mean, you know, you still have a good time. Sure. You know, you can still enjoy life. You know, and like now, I mean, these football games are going on and. I get together with some of my really good friends, and you know, some of them that aren't my friend once in a while, and you know, <laughs> uh, still have a good time and go to the games, and you know, ginger ale's fine, water's fine, and the camaraderie is what we're there for to watch a game and enjoy ourselves as alcoholics. So thank you for letting me speak. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to You know, it kind of goes into the fact that my recovery is my responsibility. Nobody else. Nobody else has to change or anything. But also, too, just check your motives into what you're doing. You know, I I wasn't thinking. I got sober in May, and come October, my cousin had an Oktoberfest party. I didn't think about what Oktoberfest meant. <laughs> <laughs> and I show up, and there's drinks galore. And thank goodness my parents were like, I'm like, I just wanted to be around my family. But at a certain point, I had to realize my capability of it was just too triggering. You know, and I just went and walked around. Friends to call and talk to them and things. Um, it's it's my motivation. I can go out and dance. It's all based on my spiritual condition. I can go out and dance and, and, and have fun with friends. I can be around. You know, I remember being around my family and one of my cousins' wedding, and everybody was drunk. Everybody, and I'm sober. And I'm like, this is so much fun being sober and watching you guys all look so you know act so fun and crazy because they have control of drinking. They have the ability to 
to put the drink down or not, you know, my aunt wasn't her apple teenies. But you know, I, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, with peaches out and everything. But <laughs> it's just, you know, but it's my responsibility, you know? Um, and um, I don't know, it's just great to know that um, you can do that. But a lot of it is you have to work the steps, you have to work on yourself, you have to really learn about motivations. I didn't know about motivations. I just did. You know, so to learn about, you know, and be able to stop myself and check myself as to why I'm doing what I'm doing, and no matter what the topic may be, is, is one of the <coughs> blessings about uh, the program. Because then I don't make the, uh, put myself in harm's way. I don't put myself in, in, in a place that I can't handle. I don't put myself in situations that um, will cause me to drink or want me to make, you know, cause me to want to get out of myself, whatever the case may be, but it's been the biggest blessing for me. And, and, you know, we, we do get to be around our families, you know. And I remember my first Christmas, I was like, you know, my mom was like, people didn't love me the way I wanted. But if they loved me, they would do this. If they loved me, they would do that. And then I guess somewhere, I'm sure it's from the rooms, I heard, well, how do they love you? So I went into it like, how do they show that they love me? And then how do I show that I love them? And so that's really a, a bigger blessing too, whenever I go into social environments. And not what, you know, this past Christmas, it was more what can I give it, instead of what am I getting? And it was just, you know, we can do that here. It doesn't have to be all about us all the time. You know, and um, I'm just blessed, so thank you. Thanks, Natalie. <coughs> so I've shared a couple different instances before in past meetings of um, situations where I went and stayed knowing they were drinking because I felt like I did have the willpower and ones that I avoided because I didn't. Like the holidays were all harder for me. Um, in Bethel Island, they do this thing at Delta where they paint on your face, the glow light darks are on, or the glow the dark lights are on, and um, they do karaoke and everybody's just Shit. That used to be my thing, dude. That was like my home meeting. Wrap up your week with a bunch of drinks and silly songs, and you wake up the next day hungover, still drunk, or still painted. Um, and besides, when I when I hit my thirty days, I felt like I had had enough accountability for myself that I knew I was going to stick with this. Um, once I hit thirty days, I was like, okay, that was hard, but I know I'm going to stick with this, and I trust that. Um, I'm not gonna just throw it away for one night. Oh, fuck it, I can start again tomorrow. I don't have that luxury. Um, so on 30 days, instead of going friend by friend by friend, as they were closing from everybody from them, and telling them, you know, I finally went and got help, because they're all alcoholics. I, I swear, I know this, but it's not a conversation I wanted to have with each and every one of them, because I didn't want conflict. Um, so I just kind of posted on, on my Facebook to kind of give myself a little more accountability in my social circles without having to have that pressure conversation with each and every one. Um, and I wasn't ashamed. I mean, at first I was, but I wasn't ashamed to put it out there. Um, it kind of was self-preservation for me. So I didn't have to have all those same redundant conversations. Um, and um, some, of, some of my friends saw them, um, who knows, but I was invited by um, a friend of a friend who I used to go out with a lot last night to Delta to go partake. I did not work at 11.30 at night. I'm not home until midnight. 
And um, before I would be up about this time getting my girls for my husband, and it wouldn't have mattered. I still would have gone out until four o'clock in the morning, probably waking up drunk, trying to take care of the kids in the morning. Um, and that was just something I would do. And I saw no problem with it because I still went about my responsibilities. I found nothing wrong with that. Um, so they're like, why don't you come out, come sing with us, and come get your face in and stuff like that. And, and I could have, I mean, I miss my friends. Um, and taking, going back and socializing into those situations, kind of like situation by situation. Um, and one of my, one of my closer friends does know that I'm an alcoholic there, that I have soft recovery. So I know I would have had like that buddy system accountability thing, but you're right. It is nobody's responsibility to babysit my grown ass in my recovery. It's not even my sponsor's job, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, but I said no. I said no. And because I knew I had had a long day, I was going to smell everything the second I walked in. And I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust my emotions, everything I've been going through, not to drown in it. I didn't trust to not make excuses. Because um, Lord, do I still catch myself doing that sometimes. Maybe not about drinking, but like about still things in life where I catch myself and I'm like, that, that, I see you. I see what that was. Nope. You didn't get me this time. Um, and, it, and it's kind of one of those things where I do have to ask myself, am I capable of actually enjoying this or am I just going to be a humbug? Because honestly, I have no right going out there and being a humbug because I want to be pissy about not being able to drink. And now my friends, instead of having fun, are, oh, Sam, it's okay. We won't drink. Dude, you're at a bar. Go drink. Have fun. You're not the one who blacks out and takes it too far. You're good. Like... So I, I stayed at home, I watched my shows, and, and for the first time in like three weeks, I actually got to sleep in. So I'm, I'm actually really proud that I said no, and that I might have missed out on some social event and stuff like that, and I miss my friends, but I know I'm not ready for those situations yet. I know I'm not, so I was actually really proud of myself, and being proud of the little things in my recovery has really, really been a struggle that's kind of tied to my negative outlook on myself. Because um, when I hit 30 days, yeah, I mean, I was proud, I, I hit a birthday. But I was an everyday drinker, so in my mind, I only worked through like three burning sensation nights. So it didn't seem like that much. But as I'm going into these situations in life in general, I'm using, I'm using these tools. And honestly, that that is what I'm most incredibly proud of that I'm actually at 27 years old finally learning how to process these toxic situations and not let them continue to fester in me because that's what brought me to binge drinking and I mean I still catch myself sometimes but like I can think about these things and not let them destroy me not hold on to petty shit because right now being sober my emotions are still so raw so raw and so Powerful, and I've always had a negative outlook, a hatred for my emotions. Because I was called crazy. Why are you overreacting? You're being crazy. Holy crap. You can call me any name in the book but crazy. You want to see crazy? Call me crazy. <laughs> and it's just like I'm, I'm learning to accept that it is okay that I'm feeling these things, but to evaluate. Am I feeling this a little exaggerated? Is, is that why I, you know, I can feel my heart pounding on inside my chest? Um, do you, you know, is it 
Is it something that is serious that I feel maybe need to take action on? Or am I just trying to look for an excuse to react poorly to something? Right. Or to speak up because I deserve my word out there. Which, I mean, you do, but I mean, take your battles, man, you know? And I'm still learning how to deal with that right now. And I've got beautiful people. I called Caleb the other night, dude, when I, I dealt with, I got through the situation myself. I had, I had a full-blown panic attack. I kind of didn't realize it until I was already there, but kind of pulled a creeper back where I drove past my ex-husband's house because I just wanted to kill my daughters. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't drawn to a liquor store. I was drawn to my kids. And I called him crying and he's like, what's wrong, dude? I was like, you know, this not, not happened. And, you know, I just, your girlfriend saw me driving by, so I knew this was probably going to come up in conversation, so I just wanted to tell you and, you know, him and I might not get along and everything, but he talked me down from my anxiety attack. Like, I, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't talk. You know, it was really traumatic for me. And and my first thought wasn't to drink. I mean, you know, afterwards, I definitely kind of wanted to smoke to calm down after that, but like, I didn't. <clears throat> but he ended up sending me a, a video of my, my daughter sleeping. And like, that was really helpful, because he, he is very capable of being a dick. He was. <laughs> <laughs> struggle with my higher power and changing my perspective on what that means to me, but one thing that's been consistent um, is my kids. My kids are my higher power. The the reward of their present love and the fear of losing them, like that is something I am certain and that I feel daily. That is my proof of my higher power, those feelings. Um, so like, I got through that moment, I didn't drink, I got through last night, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, like, and I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful to be here this morning. I dragged my ass out of bed, kicked and screaming, but like, I'm grateful for you guys to be here so that, you know, we have this safe place so that we can start our day good. You know, because I'm gonna have one hell of a day. I'm probably gonna come across 10 triggers to my kids, but I am starting it off right because I know that that is the right move. And by doing that right move and starting my day like that, I know that you don't always get proof. You don't always feel that spiritual, that everybody's talking about, but like I know that starting my day with that right move here, it's going to just change my mentality. I'm not gonna have to force it, it just already feels better. And um, thank you guys because without this meeting, without you guys, like this wouldn't this wouldn't be a thing. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Welcome. Congratulations. Being here recovery That first step says you're powerless. If you say you're an alcoholic then you must be an alcoholic if you're saying so for yourself. That's you saying, I'm an alcoholic. So now you can do something about it. Try 90 meetings in 90 days. That's a suggestion. Don't pick up a drink in between the meetings. That's another suggestion. Then read the material there. That's their experience, training, and hopes. Just what you're reading right now. They're explaining to you what they did and what they went through. And you see the similarities? And then they give the solution. Don't drink. That's the beginning. That's only the beginning. Doing this work is the, the end result of what you do to stay clean and sober. It helped. It helped me. I was hopeless. I used to drink in the middle of the night. I used to wait till the stores open so I could get a bottle. I used to go out and play cards till all night long. And then the, uh, the bar opened at 6, and I was right there already. Drink ready for me. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready for it. Drink for me. 
I used to go out dancing, drink up a storm before I danced, bravest man on the dance floor. <laughs> I used to do a lot of things when I drank. Now I do none of them. They call not crazy, they call it insanities. Came to believe a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity. Whatever your power is, I don't know. Mine is God. I asked God for help, and God gave me help. I've been raised on God, and after hearing it for, for 67 years, I think I know what I understand. I learned. I went to school for over 20 years. I learned. I worked on the job for over 41 years. I learned. People are there to help me. People in here are to help you with their, with their suggestions or to say, I'm just like you. I'm an alcoholic. And it helps. It helped me. <laughs> And I was one of the worst people out there. I was worse than Jeff. I don't care what Jeff said. <laughs> don't care. I was worse. Because it was me. It was me inside this head. A mental obsession is one of the things you'll probably read about. If you have a mental obsession and you're thinking about it all the time, that's where everything comes from. It comes from a thought. Everything comes from a thought. I don't know if anybody tells you any difference. But it comes from a thought. So that third step's where I'm at as far as every day. I turned my will over to God. Made a decision to turn my will and this life I have over to God. And when I did that and I read what God wanted for me, it was nothing but love. So, and I continue on to the rest of the steps. And I still continue. Continue to take personal inventory. Not every day, but quite a bit. I know who I am. That's what you learn. When you do a four-step, you learn who you are. You learn who you are and what you can do. I've learned, and I hold on to what I learned. I don't listen to somebody out there. Well, you can have a drink. No, I have a problem with it. No, you can have one. Don't ever tell me what I can have. Don't ever tell me what I can have, because I learned who I was, who I am, what I can do. It works. That's, that's what basically I'm getting to, one day at a time. That's all you can do, one day at a time. Whatever anybody else says, that's what anybody else is saying. In here, you're sharing experience, strength, and hopes. It works. If you want it, if you're willing to do the work, honesty, willingness, and keep open to what you're doing, it works. That's all, thanks. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Robert Apollo. Robert, Robert. 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 Newcomers, that's a new show. It was, uh, I was going to chime in on this last week on this chapter. Um, uh, the chapter is referring to spiritual fitness, you know, and, and pure motives. So I tell you right now, even with the years in recovery, you take me to a Raider game, uh, hot August night, street vibrations, those lights, those neon lights are just blinking, and I can see them from a football field away. You know, the beer stand. Uh, it's just, yeah, every time I go with my son he, and he sees the lights, like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, that's so good, you know? My motive going to these places now is to enjoy the bikes, the cars, the different shows, the games. It's not to go party. And then the chapter's talking about when we're spiritually fit, we can do almost anything. Yeah. I was hanging out with Herbie. We went to a festival in Petaluma, I think it was, right? And we didn't realize, no, I didn't realize, I never heard of this type of beer, but I guess the beer company's putting beer, uh, the festival on, right? 
And you, uh, you know, Herbie and I, we show up and we get in line, and it's like, oh yeah, Halloween contest, or is this an erotic? Is it You know, because they had all kinds of uh, dress ups on, you know? And Herbie and I, we're just tripping through this whole place, music here, stage going off over there, plays going off over there, and in reality, there was beer stands all around us, selling all these different beers. But Herbie and I, we were just kicking back, having fun, enjoying the music and the scenery and, and you know, just the camaraderie. Because on the ride there and on the ride home, it's about life and recovery. You know, it wasn't about drinking or, or using people. Um, the good book is referring to about, you know, I wanted to say last week that you may not be able to go to the wedding or the anniversary party or the... Uh, but we have an annual uh, family reunion that meets now. When we go to LA, man, it's a, it's, a drunk, it's a drunk fest. It is. But, you know, uh, it's referring to as drug recovery, it's just for now. You know, everything's not forever. You may not be able to go to certain places for now, for this month, for the next three months. But don't look at it as next three months or next six months. Or, you know, just look at it for now. I can't make it to that party because I'm not spiritual. And that's what the big book talks about. Is, you know, our sobriety is contingent on our spirituality. If I'm, if I'm unhealthy spiritually, I do not belong in any of those places I just mentioned because it's just going to trigger you. Herbie and I ran into some clouds over there, some smoke clouds. They were like, whoa, we got to find some fresh air. Because it was like, damn, you know, straight up skunk weed going on. But, you know, uh, we weren't there for the skunk weed, we weren't there for the beer. We were there for the entertainment and the camaraderie, and we were spiritually fit. Uh, on the way there, we were talking about recovery and life. <clears throat> on the way home, same thing, and that's really what it's talking about. So, you know, when you're not good, Jack pulled me up out of the, out of the curb, I don't know, about a month ago, I was down about something, and uh, and he noticed it, you know? I mean, that's what we do in here. We we help each other, we support each other when something's not right, when, you're out of, when someone's out of sorts. And, that would not have been a good time for me to go to any of those places because beer is always going to be there. People are always going to be partying. You know, drunk drunks are always going to be there. And like uh, Francisco was saying here, uh, I have my one cousin, he can't stand that I don't drink with him. And he's blitzed first thing in the morning, you know? But I just have to explain to him, no, I'm good, and I'm good, you know? And I just kind of, you know, go off in a different direction. I just kind of, once he gets to that, the need to read point, I stay away from him. Because you know, these these people, places, and things that we are, we interact with, they're gonna be there. The big book says don't don't run away from it. It's just for now. What it's talking about is give yourself a break from it just for today. Mm-hmm. And the next one that comes up, just not this time, you know. It's okay to miss miss a big event. If, you know, if you're not there spiritually, don't go. But if you wanna go, get spiritually fit and take someone with you. You know? It's that simple because uh it's this, uh, it's this unity and it's this uh, camaraderie about recovery, you know. Um, when we when we get when I leave recovery and I start talking out of sorts, you know, my 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 circle of blue dogs. That's a whole other story. Blue dogs, red dogs. But the blue dogs are going to keep you in that circle of recovery. The red dogs are going to take you right back to where you're partying. Because that old saying of you know, you got to step playing in the playground, playing with the clay. Play things and put away the play toys. That's simple, you know. You, I can't go back and go crack out. Are you kidding me? You know, 
I went back to doing a man's one time, and it was like the same people wearing the same clothes, <laughs> talking about the same shit, chasing the same tail. You know, they don't change. So, you know, but I was there for the men. And I did my part, and I got it. So, it's, uh, so, you know, it's just a temporary thing. Nothing is forever, you guys. It's, uh, do yourself a favor and just uh, stay away from it for a little bit. I'm out. Thank you. Hey, I'm Derek. I'm a great sponsor. Hey, Derek. 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 Hey, there's a lot of love and support to Just please stick with it. Don't forget your time. There's a lot of beautiful on this reading today. I mean, a lot of stuff. But one of the first things I heard, besides besides the basics, when you come around AA, they say don't drink, go to meetings. If you have other substances, don't use, don't pick up, and go to meetings. No matter what, even if you feel like it, you don't have to take one. And then they say once you come here, get you know, get a sponsor, buy the book. And have that person take you through the steps. Read and write the steps, write it down, meet with them, go through the steps, and you're guaranteed or promised to have a spiritual awakening. That's how it works. <coughs> and you stop thinking about drinking and drugs. You just stop. But one of the things they suggest early is like you gotta change people, places, and things. Because when you're new in sobriety, you're vulnerable for a relapse. You're vulnerable. And and sometimes it happens so fast just because you go around them. Before you know it, somebody has a drink in your hand, pushing a drink on you, or, or you, you get triggered, you know? Mm -hmm. For me, early, it was watching Scarface, you know what I mean? Because I thought I was from in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> and who put this together? Me. <laughs> All that. And my sponsor said, no, watch that movie, man. Okay, then they going to trigger you. I say, oh, man, that's my favorite game. Ain't nothing more happening. Should I watch that shit? And I have to call my sponsor. Oh, no, I'm chosen right now. <laughs> But that's just one of many examples where he tells you, man, you gotta protect your sobriety day. You gotta protect your clean day. If you're gonna do anything that may jeopardize your recovery and get you drunk, get you loaded, don't do it. You know, if you're not, it's like it's been shared, man. We're all sharing the same thing. You know, pr prayer helps to keep you spiritually fit. If you're spiritually fit, you can go anywhere. AA is a bridge back to life. So if you keep coming back here, you're going to get your life back. You're going to stop drinking, learn how to stay, stop, live by these spiritual principles, and you're going to get your life back. And for many of us, the life we have after we get sober is better than what we had before. Because when you're walking around drunk and loaded, half the time you don't know what the hell you're doing or who you're doing it with. You know, you wake up out of a blackout and you're like, oh, really? <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that is. So one of the things I learned, man, is like uh, it's good to be sober. It's a it's a beautiful thing when you're sober, you have serenity. But I'm responsible, you know, like to protect my sobriety day. You know, keep the focus on my recovery and uh, stay out of other people's business. You know, I, I had a friend I used to sponsor years ago. He said the, mo the most precious thing in his life is to go fishing with his homie. That he grew up, <coughs> fall forward, went fishing for freaking all his life. And he could not. He said, now he's probably come to AA. He could not stop going fishing on Saturday with him. And he would come back drunk every time. Mm. Every time. And we said, change people, face and things. Oh, this is where it is in the book. This is where it is in the book. Here's the book. Yes. And eventually, he just he stopped coming around. <coughs> he got drunk again and again and again. And he refused to live. But, you know, the stuff is from previous experience from other alcoholics. It's previous experience. 
You know, I heard something really touch, you know, year, years ago, a young lady was taking her 29, 28, 29 year chip, and she said, you know, the longer I come to AA and stay sober, the way I look at things change. And she said, when the, when the way I look at things change, the things that I look at, I change the things that I look at. You know, in other words, like, if you know something's gonna get you loaded, if you know that sober is hot, you don't put your hand on it, right? You know, you know, or you don't stick a fork in an electric socket. You, you, when you were a kid, you didn't, you did that, you didn't know better. But when you know something's gonna burn you, you stay away from it. If you're gonna go to a cop, and the person that you wanna cop the drugs for <coughs> look like an undercover, just keep it pushing until you see somebody you know. Otherwise, you're going to jail, homie. Yeah. So this experience—that's what experience is. Like you know. But I'm here to say that part of this thing is called emotional sobriety, right? And emotional sobriety comes a lot by my relationship with getting a sponsor, right? Because I learned about responsibility for my recovery and responsibility for my life. Because that's ultimately what you do. You take personal responsibility for your life, one little slice at a time. First, you take responsibility for your recovery, your sobriety. Then you start taking responsibility for your kids. You know, they, they didn't have to be brought into this world. Now they're in this world. And regardless of what the relationship was, not, it's your kids. You know, the fruit of your loins. Take, you know, take responsibility for the job. You got to show up there. You want a paycheck on Friday? You better bet you're behind. You got to show up uh, on time every day or they're going to fire you. And all these things are going to take responsibility for. And sometimes it just starts by taking a service commitment in a meeting. I learned to show up to make coffee or be a secretary when I don't feel it. I don't want to be here, but I learned to do things that we don't want to do and sometimes just take contrary action. So developing personal responsibility is very important. But the, the twin sister for responsibility, brothers and sisters, is accountability. It's a dirty word, man. But when you get a sponsor, you get somebody who, somebody always say, Mind, you gotta mind somebody. That's just that's a real, real <laughs> You gotta mind your sponsor. The sponsor will give you some suggestion that's like, I don't, I'm not doing that. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Are you, sometimes I ask my sponsor, are you still drinking? You <laughs> no, my sponsor is as sober as a judge. But he's given me some experience that it's like taking medicine. How do you just feel that, Mr. Sponsor? So, but I don't have to run off and fire my sponsor. Just sleep on it overnight. Just stay 24 hours. You don't like that spot? That's a suggestion? Based on his experience, just sleep on it overnight. Remember, this person taking the time out of their life to sponsor you and take you through the steps for free. We don't get paid. But before you fire the sponsor, before you. And the, the wonderful thing about it, I've become accountable to one person that's the sponsor. Like, I got to keep an honest relationship with that person. I may be lying to everybody that's around me, but if you're lying about your sobriety date around here, and if you're lying to your sponsor, you're still a liar. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> if you're still doing old behaviors, it's not old behaviors. So that's where it starts with the honesty, man. It's not just about not drinking or drugging. Honesty with that sponsor. Or if you cannot be honest with that sponsor, it's time to be honest with yourself. So it's time to get another sponsor that you can be honest with. And But what we learn is like, be accountable. If you call your sponsor and say, you know, sponsor, I feel like I feel like some self-help sex at four o'clock in the morning. He said, "I wouldn't do that if I were you." And then you call him back. And you, you know, you know, well, I did that at four o'clock in the morning. I'm ashamed of it. Sponsor said, "How's that working out for you?" Piss you off because you know now we know that you're doing self-help sex. You know, and he said, "Like you're accountable for that, sponsor. You're 
that's how this program works. You, you have to be accountable for somebody. And especially when you got smart teeth. They call it you put some, some dose of honesty. You can't be up there sugar coping and covering up and trying to look good. But you can't save your ass and save your face at the same time. So to help that person, you gotta give it to them. Straight up with no chasing. Oh and and sometimes they can't take it, sometimes they wanna fire you. But always leave the door open. Say, I'm still here. I'll just share my experience with you. You may not have done that yet, but if that's what I did. And if you can take it or leave it. I'm not telling you what to do, I'm just telling you my experience. So you learn responsibility and accountability up in here. And that's the cornerstone, foundation of emotional sobriety. And the reason why that's important is that we learn to build boundaries, emotional boundaries up in here. Say no when you mean no. Don't let people walk on you like a doormat, okay? Some part, because I know self be true, and sometimes deep in your soul and in your heart, you're going to be like, that hurts. I don't want you to do that no more. Mm -hmm. The words have to come out of your mouth and say, look, now I'm not feeling that. Please don't do that no more. I don't like that. And it's hard, but the first time you say it, you feel guilty. You feel ashamed speaking mm -hmm. up for yourself. But that's exactly the medicine you need yep. to get these people out of your life. Mm -hmm. Or if People treat them, treat us the way we allow them to treat us. Oh, mm -hmm. People treat us the way we allow them to treat us. Until you start putting us from a mountain, some healthy emotional boundaries, people gonna be walking around, people gonna be using you for money, be sleeping in your house, borrowing your car, you know, be all kinds of crazy. And you're like, I need to say no. It's only no, but I don't know that word until I come in here and do some work and I start saying like, you know. Say, say no to your kid. I wanted two hundred and fifty dollars uh, Michael Jordan sneakers. No. <laughs> I get a job. Thanks, Derek. Thank you, Derek. A friend, alcoholic. I'm here by God's grace. God, the judge sent me. You know, I'm fully clothed in my right mind. And I'm pushing up daisies. Oh, it's been a wonderful meeting. It's nice to see so many people here. I think the thing I wanted to say is that the program respected me. In other words, it loved me till I can uh, accept that love. I didn't know how to love Fernando, how to accept Fernando, and how to deal with Fernando's dilemma of, of sins and, and chaos and all that stuff. And, and it happened. The magic happened. I didn't think the program was going to work. How in the hell is my life going to get better by me reading this book? This attorney going to back off? The IRS going to back off? The Bill collectors, the the shame and the guilt and the remorse and the, and how about all those kids that got all over California, you know? But it did, it worked out. I live in L.A. and I I come up here and I just tend <coughs> tend to do some H and I work over here in Concord. I went over there last night, and after I got done telling the guys that I live in L.A. and I come and I I give the guys a break, the guys that do it constantly every week. Uh, uh, Tuesdays and Fridays, I happen to go there more often. So if anybody ever wants to go when I'm in town, we can get a, a tag team together, you know, and, and uh, help those guys out there. Uh, some of you may know what it is, just a, a, a holding tank where they hold them for about seven, ten days till they, uh, and then, but you, they, they, it's a mandatory AA meeting, so we go in there and they have to listen to you. <laughs> so I, I went over there and I, this never happened before you know when I finished my share one guy gave me a hug and the next guy and the next guy and next time what, what happened is like they with the same thing that happened to me I gave them respect and I poured hope into their cups mm -hmm. you know hope 
You know, faith, that's what alcohol does. It takes that all that away, you know? And, and then and then the, the illusion is that the booze is still talking to you. Hey, drink me. You'll be able to put everything in perspective. Oh, you lying son of a gun. The last time I, I drank you, I'm running naked down the park. <laughs> so I don't want to go that route no more. You know, that's, that's what you call uh, looking back and seeing all the wreckage. You know, 27, 25 years, 20 years of the same thing and it's not working out. This is the, uh, the way, the truth, and the life for me. So I got my AA degree, real quick, like Alcoholic Anonymous and Associates of Arts. And then when you read all these books here, this is your master's degree. And then your sponsor will take you out for a hamburger. And then if you read all those up there, then you get a doctorate. And then he'll take you out for a steak. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you, <laughs> Hi, I'm Kayla. Hi, So I was extremely resistant to AA when I first came into the group. I mean extremely resistant. First one to leave, that asshole in the back who's just sitting there like, oh, my God, is it over yet? Constantly checking the clock. Just totally shutting everyone down without giving it any kind of shot at all. I was totally just like, nope, not for me. I don't even care. But, you know, for some weird fucking reason, I just kept coming back. <laughs> I just kept showing up. I kept being here. And so I didn't really quite understand what was happening. Like, why am I coming here? I don't like this. I No. Fuck. I just want to drink, but I know that I can't. And I know that people are telling me that this program works, so I guess that's why I'm coming back, you know? But if it wasn't for people in the fellowship actually reaching out and approaching me, I'm definitely positive that I'd be back out there. I would be doing what the fuck I do, <coughs> drinking every single day, I mean, getting high, doing whatever the hell I wanted. And telling myself every single day, like, okay, I'm not gonna do it today. Because, you know, my best thinking got me here. You know how many times I'd say, I'm not gonna drink today. And then I'd come home and be like, well, just a few shots. And then that led to blackout pass out at like three in the morning. And if it wasn't for the people here, I don't know where I would have been because doing it by myself was not working. And then when I came into these rooms, I thought I could just read the book. I could just work these steps. I could do it all on my own. I'm smart enough. That's tight. Like, I got this. No, it just did not work for me. At some point, I stopped reading. At some point, I was just, you know, ostracizing myself. I was literally just like, I'm alone. Nobody gets me. Nobody gets what I'm going through. Oh, my God. Woe is me. Why doesn't anybody get me? But like, holy shit, so far from the goddamn truth. I mean, literally, once I opened my ears up to what people were actually saying, once I started going back into the book with my sponsor, it was like, I remember when I read Bill's story for the first time, I was like, what the fuck is this? I, <laughs> next, you know. But then when I sat down and I read it with my sponsor, it was a total game changer. It was totally like, whoa, that is me. Even to the point when Bill says, you know, he had a certain amount of sobriety under him. 
and he thought he could handle it. He thought he was good. He went back out there, and the next thing you know, he was out of control again, off the chain. And I mean, it was just so eye-opening. Now here's this guy from the 30s that's literally me. Like, oh my God, I did not, I did not get that reading that by myself. And so working with another alcoholic really opened my eyes up to the program. It's a way of living. It's not just about not drinking. And that's what I had to wrap my brain around, is that I thought, as long as I don't drink, I'm okay, right? But that's not the reality of the situation, is it's me. Like, I, when I wasn't drinking, my emotions were so raw. I mean, I, I did not want to deal with what I was thinking, with what I was feeling. I didn't want to go there. And I was like, one of my main reasons for drinking was to get out of myself. And now I found myself sober and so stuck in myself that I was like, oh my God, I just want to drink. I just want to get stoned. I just want to use whatever the fuck I can because I don't want to feel or think this way. But once again, AA was there for me. Like the fellowship was there for me. I was able to get through a lot of this stuff. And I'm still going through it. But like my sponsor is totally there for me. I got a great group of ladies that I like to work with and that I see at least on a weekly basis. And you know, I attribute my sobriety to that. If it wasn't for these people reaching out for me and you know, making me, helping me with my own accountability. And like we said, you know, sobriety is your responsibility, not anybody else's. And so if you are taking the right steps, taking the suggestions, if you are being active in that, then you are working on your accountability. And people are in AA are just there to help you along the way. And you know, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so, so thankful for people who just stuck with me because I was such a terrible bitch. Like, it was awful. And you know, now I feel like I've really made a total turnaround. And so, you know, thank you guys for being a part of my recovery. Thank you for being there for me because I don't think I could have done this at all alone because doing it alone got me pissed off and angry and drunk and stoned and fucked up on whatever the hell I wanted to get fucked up on. So thank you guys. Thank Thanks. you. Uh, anything? Uh, rewards? Who's got the rewards? I do. I'm Sarah. I'm Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. 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 Hope instead of desperation. Two. Faith instead of despair. <coughs> Courage instead of fear. Four. Peace of mind instead of confusion. Anyone, you see here, anything you're here, here, I'm gonna stay here. Here. Okay, okay. We're all connected. Oh, Right? Let's remember to stay sober just for one day at a time. Do it for yourself. Do for all the kids caught in the crossfire. And remember that the best you is the sober you. Who brought us here today? Our, Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Keep coming, coming back. back. It works if you work. Woo! I'm Fernando. Yeah, well, you're a good reader. <laughs> really? The train passed by, you slowed down. <laughs> yeah, it passed the test. Yeah. My voice is a little weird. How long have you been coming to the meeting? Um, well, I've been coming. Nine, AA as such ought never be organized, 
but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10, Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities.
emotional as you get older because you just look at the tra trajectory of your life. Mm. You know, you look at the life that you could have had, and you look at the life that you had, and it's just overwhelming. And um, Mark, tell us about it. Everybody gets three minutes. These two women over here are in charge of timing. <laughs> that's thirty. That's thirty seconds left. After two and a half minutes, and then after three minutes, you're gonna get a red card. <laughs> I'm Marv. I'm an alcoholic. Congratulations! I remember seeing them celebrate the years, and it's good to good to see you back. Little quick recap: 1968, October. I had been on my last on the wagon trip, and I concluded that I cannot stop drinking, and that I'm going to go back to drinking now because I had gone for about three days without drinking. I had taken about 50 100 milligrams of Thorazine to stop the shakes all by myself, and the mouth gets so dry you can't even fit. <laughs> And I'm going down the highway and the road is, these little things are floating around and I said, I can't do this, I'm going to drink till I die. And I went to the bar and I poured a double shot of brandy and a glass of beer and started in in October. And I decided by the middle of November I had reservations whether or not I was going to live till I died. I was so miserable. <laughs> Thank God on December 27th in the workplace, the girl next to me popped uh, her mouth open at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, just her and I in the office, and she said, Marv, she said, I don't know what you got hit down in the basement down there, but you smell like a distillery. And I was really ticked because I didn't have nothing hidden in the basement. I was going out the front door down to the bar on the corner. She said, I'm going to have... She says, I'm doing all the work and you're getting the pay. I'm, I'm going to have you terminated. And I thought, you know, right now I'd be willing to quit drinking to save my job to have money to drink on. And only an alcoholic can understand that thought process. <laughs> but I became willing. And it was in short form. From there I ended up at the doctor's office and getting uh, a report to go into the institution the next day, which was the loony bin, the cuckoo's nest, because I had emotional problems. And it was there that within a few days, my mind started clearing out, and I had a session with the psychologist, and I told him that I thought I drank too much. And that was, I've been working with this kind of thing for years, and that was the smartest one I ever met. He said, I can't help you. He said, I know someone who can. And I got referred over to a guy that walked in the door and he said I could get out, I could stay for a month and when I get out go to AA. And the second thing I need to do is keep going. And that was 49 years ago. And it's worked. Thank you.
and I was such a bright person. Everybody should be bowing down to me because I had done something fantastic. So I thought I would reward myself with a little beer. The big tall can. Two days later, this was on the 1st of July, I drank the rest of that night, the rest of all of the 2nd of July, the 3rd of July, I tried to drink, but all I was doing was throwing up. Now, my sister and I was teased about having our comfort, our family reunions in the bathroom. That was our normal thing, was to drink and go to the bathroom and get sick. My mother had to hire babysitters to take care of our children because we would lay in there and puke, you know. And that was our reunions. So here I am, one more time, on that floor, puking. I had 20 people invited over to the place and 20 people in one bathroom. And I'm being on the floor sick. And I'll tell you, none of them thought it was unusual. I had been doing that for years. And they just stepped over me when they had news to toilet went on, you know. They'll be sick again. Big deal, you know. And so, but I got, this time I went into convulsions. And I got caught between the tub and the stool. And I looked like I had been beaten up by a group of people. And I come out of there and I said, oh my God, I'm gonna die. And that's when it came to me. I had to quit drinking because I was going to die. And so anyway, I started looking around and, and uh, I was able to stay sober for a couple of weeks. But my aunt, she still was drinking. So I decided I'd go down to the meeting. I heard about AA. I'm going to go down and get a few brochures for her. Because I stopped, you know. Uh, I've stopped for a couple of weeks. So I, I'm good. I can always stop. But I got in there and I found that the program was for me. My aunt never sobered up. And that's her story. My story is I sobered up. My children sobered up, and I am so grateful to be here. This is such a wonderful way to be, and I, I just love all of you. You're my extended family. Thank you very much. On deck, we have Ginger R., Ron Z., and Irish John. On deck, please. If you have an empty seat next to you, if you can raise your hand, and two people sitting uh, standing in the back. Thank you. Come on, Jeff. I'm an alcoholic. My name is Jim C. from New York. I had a very bizarre life before I came to AA. I was uh, all over the place. I drank in the 60s into 1970. And um, I was self-centered to the extreme. I was fearful, I was resentful. I had all the attitudes that the book talks about, the big book about Rollins Anonymous and so forth. I wasn't a good husband, I wasn't a good father. And I wasn't a good employee because it probably might grab me blind. But I never seemed to know who I was, so I tried different things and I, I hung out with uh, famous musicians. I definitely hung out with Jim Morrison. I know some of you don't believe that, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. 
<laughs> pictures in one of the restaurants in town. I said to the waitress, you know that guy? I don't know. And, um, and you remember Kent State? And the National Guard shot. My best friend Jeffrey Miller was killed. He went on, the, he was the guy with the girl over him, one of the most famous pictures ever taken in the world. And I resented Nixon for that. I resented everything. Did I really, I didn't know what I was. I always drank. I just drank. I had to try to get into everything. Uh, it was getting to be the Vietnam time. Um, I was, uh, was going to go, but I couldn't because of double vision, of which I still have to this day. And um, the last day I drank, see, I was trying to be everything. I was, I didn't like hippies. I, my wife was a hippie. <laughs> but she looked good. She had a fine, she had a very fine rear end that she could look. And that's the only reason I married her. I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing in life. I just, and I never seemed to fit in. So I had my last drink June 20th, 1970. Not because I wanted to, but something upstairs, I think, somehow motivated me to come to AA. And I still didn't want to stop when I got here, that meeting. By the end of the meeting, I wanted to stay here forever. I do not understand that to this day, and I will never understand that. So they told me there's a solution here. We have an answer for you. My sponsor said, are you willing to take certain steps? They were taking me out to diners, buying me underwear. I needed underwear. They were doing everything. And, uh, so the solution he told me was in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that I am an alcoholic of a hopeless variety, but I can recover if I take certain steps. And it's a spiritual way of life. And that's what I did. And that's the reason I'm here. I go to meetings. I'm into that. I am into that book. And I highly recommend that to newcomers. Get into that book. That's what they left us. Nothing else. Just the big book. That's what they left us. Thank you. I'm Ginger and I'm an alcoholic. Look at all of you. You've got faces that move and eyes that sparkle. Um, I like to drink at a place called The Trails End. Um, they didn't have people that look like you there. Um, I was in so much denial when I came to AA. Um, I, my home group is the Woodland Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Woodland, California. And uh, my sobriety date is April 5th, 1975. And I was 26 years old when I came in here. You were all old. And I was the youngest one for a long time. And I didn't think I had a problem. I was in so much denial. So they sent me to Al-Anon. And I, I thought, oh yeah, okay. That's good, because it's your fault. I'm here, not mine. <clears throat> and those pesky Alanons, they kept saying, you know, honey, you ought to go to AA, to all those open meetings, because they'll help you. And so that's what I did. Um, the big book says that we, we experience pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Now, three years before I came to AA, I was still social drinking. Make a note of that. <laughs> I woke up one morning and I was in my apartment. I was alone. It was 
fine, except I had a big wad of chewing gum in my pubic hair. I have, <laughs> I have no recollection of where that came from. I didn't know what blackouts were until I came to AA because I just thought I forgot. Um, anyway, and the thing is, because I'm in denial and I'm fine and it's your fault, I just took scissors and cut it out and kept right on going with my social drinking. When I realized I was an alcoholic, I felt so bad. I was full of remorse guilt and regret and I felt horrible and I knew if you guys know knew that those things were happening to me when I was drinking that you would ask me to leave and at the very least you would ask me to not sit next to your husband <laughs> and my sponsor and people like you in rooms like this with eyes that sparkle and faces that move taught me that I can relieve myself of all of that guilt if I just do the work, if I do the steps, if I work the program, if I help others and if I'm in service for this program, that I can live free from that. And I don't have to drink in order to drown those feelings. Thank you very much.
three years when I made amends to him, but I'm washing dishes in a Aunt Blessing Hospital and I go to work for him a couple of months after I made that amends call. I worked for him for six years and uh, before I find him, before he upsets me enough, and I do something new this time, I, I go look for another job first. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me a year to find one that I thought was better. And uh, I saw him once after I quit, uh, we had a good conversation. I was with my kids and he was with his grandkids. And then I ran into him, it was 25 years fast forward. And I just, it was like I found a long lost brother. Because the AA and the steps transform your life. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. speaker meeting about three years ago and um, you guys you're my family you're my ohana I <clears throat> came over to my house you built a ramp um, you widened the doorways you know I mean I love Alcoholics Anonymous um, it's such a gift and, and I consider my sobriety date is um, June the 20th 1984 and my home group is um, Lucky 13, and one of the members right here in the um, <clears throat> Sunset Beach, um, on the beach. And um, for that, I am eternally grateful. I like the theme of uh, the family afterwards. Uh, my daughter's clean and sober five years. Wow. She came with me last year. and getting hit by the truck. The guy didn't, um, <clears throat> the guy that hit me stopped, but he ran over a couple of old ladies in the crosswalk. And, and he didn't, and he had really good insurance. He didn't, he didn't take off. So last year I was able to bring my daughter and my other daughter <laughs> <laughs> over here to the uh, to, to the convention. But <clears throat> I'm so grateful. I'm, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been a tender for a lot of years. I think a lot of people are tenders. Um, one of my favorite speakers, um, Debbie Davis, always says that that um, that. Being a proud member of Alcoholics Anonymous is different than being an attender, but a lot of us attend. You know, we're, we're abstinent for a while and we attend. But um, I'm proud to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, one of the best speakers, I, I like good AA speakers. I listen to a lot of speaker tapes. Well, I heard here Tina Albert, she spoke about three or four years ago, and she said, don't tease the disease. And I love that, you know. I don't know, did anybody see her that, that when she spoke here? They had, she had an interpreter that was just, just crutch funny. <laughs> she was so funny, she had the whole room laughing. The interpreter, she was so good. And I'm so grateful to be here. I, I was in a wheelchair for a very long time and I have a lot of empathy for my friends that are in wheelchairs. They, they don't have enough ramps, they don't have places where you can go out on the beach, you know. It, it, it makes it really hard. And, I'm just here to tell you that, that I like what, I guess what Debbie Davis says, that the 12 steps are a set of principles that are spiritual in nature, that, that expel, completely expel the obsession to drink alcohol and other things if you use them for other things, and enable the, um, the sufferer, and I was a sufferer and I'm sure you have been sufferer too if you're here, 
to live a life that's useful and purposeful. Thanks, Joanne. sign outside and it, it talked about the long timers and the side of it it says uh, acceptance of others in, in parentheses and I'm thinking in three minutes what can I talk about I thought no maybe live and let live you know it, it, it kind of da uh, dawned on me about one guy that uh, I heard it was uh, about my age when he got to AA you know I was late 20s and he goes into a bar one night a Friday night in Texas and he goes over to the bar steps up to the Bartender comes over and says, uh, what do you have? He says, three shots of whiskey. Bartender says, three shots of whiskey? He says, yeah, right here. So, pours them, and as usual, we do, he downs them. You know? And there's a middle-aged guy standing right next to this guy. And looks at him, he says, Sonny, he says, you know, so you keep drinking like that. He says, you're not gonna live very long. He said, my granddaddy lived to be 91 years old. He said, your granddaddy lived to be 91 years old, drinking like that? He said, no, but I minded his own business. <laughs> 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 it took me a long time in AA to learn that it, live and let live is all about that. The one I showed up, I always had a guy drinking like that. And, and I was down at my first meeting in Philadelphia, and some guy said, we don't drink here anymore. I thought, what do you What's going on here? That was back in, in, in May of uh, uh, 75. You know, and, and they showed me that one day at a time, you could stay sober, but it was gonna take much more than just the people in AA. It was gonna take the God of my understanding to, you know, to produce the power to keep me sober every day. And uh, every day I ask, and every day I receive one more day of sobriety. Coupled with working those steps, my life has really changed an awful lot. And uh, full of gratitude just to be here in this beautiful place. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Barb, grateful recovering alcoholic. And on my birthday is March 26, 1979. And I was one of those that knew I was a drunk for my first drink. It talks about it in the big book, where the first time I drank, I blacked out. And it would have been so much better if I'd have passed out. Because I made an absolute idiot of myself. And um, alcohol was good for me for a few years, but I really had a strong desire to quit. Because, you know, I was funny, you know, it, kind of the life of the party. Um, wasn't an angry drunk, but it hurt inside. I always heard the poem, and it was said a lot when I came in, when you get what you want in your struggle for self, and the world makes you queen for a day, just go in the mirror and look in the mirror and see what that gal has to say. For it isn't your family or friends whose judgment upon you must pass. The one that's most important is the one staring back in the glass. 
and I was unable to look at myself anymore, you know, with the, all of the things that piled up. And I was desperate. I tried everything it talks about in that book and more. And I, I didn't know anything about AA or anything. And so I went through a version treatment. <laughs> you know, and uh, <laughs> thank God I knew one other person quit drinking and he invited me to an AA meeting. And you know, I, I was one of those, if they had told me to stand on my head to quit drinking, I would have done anything. I had that willingness. And I, I, I thank my dad every day because I think I recognized the disease was him. And I was doing all the crap that he did, you know, growing up in that alcoholic. To me, this is the best thing that's ha happened in the past hundred years. I'm so grateful I'm alive in a day and time that we have this wonderful program, and I love my peeps. Thank you for keeping me sober. <laughs> Okay, on deck we have Kathleen H. from Redondo, Loretta, Jamestown, and Rick Mick, MC from Vancouver. If you could please come up on deck. Hi, I'm Lynn, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. It's good to be here and it's good to be sober. Uh, my sobriety date is August 28, 1980. And for that I'm truly grateful. And uh, thank you for having me at this event. I'm the uh, new kid in Hawaii. Um, I've been on the Big Island for two years, and this is my second time here. So I'm starting to feel a part of, and I figured the best way to do that is to participate. I landed in Alcoholics Anonymous, a uh, falling down, piss on myself, knock my teeth out, drunk, drug addict. And when I came in, uh, my last drunk, um, I'd stayed sober 30-something days, and I'd taken shifts at all this means, because I, I immediately identified with just about everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I feel fortunate for that. But what happened is I was still messing around with people that I probably shouldn't have been messing around with, because I have a few other addictions, too. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and so I found my uh, previous uh, beloved in bed with my best friend. And so what I did was what any good alcoholic would do. I went to the bar, you know, but it quit working a long time before I went back to uh, that bar. It quit working a long time ago. And what happened is I, I don't think I drank that much, quite honestly, but I went back to his house and, uh, and it didn't ease the pain. I needed that lesson. It didn't ease the pain at all. And I went back to that house and he threw me out and, I smashed the front glass door in, and he came out, tried to kill me, might have been a broken collarbone, had the police come, landed in the emergency room, and, uh, you know, just a little social drinking. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I've been sober, I've been sober ever since. And if you want to hear how I did it, I'm actually speaking in this room tomorrow at 1 o'clock. So. <laughs> Everybody, I'm Kathleen. Kathleen. Yeah, Kathleen. Yeah. 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 From Redondo Beach. <laughs> Had my knee replaced, and I really thought I'd be well by now. And I'm having some sciatic, something or other, and that's why I'm looking. Oh, 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 no, it's being wheelchair. But anyway, I'm alcoholic, and I did not know that. I started drinking when I was 14, and I went to <coughs> Catholic high school. And one day, I was riding in a car with a about eight kids in this old Toyota, and we were all naked, and we were <laughs> 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 drinking, and it was like the afternoon on the weekend. I mean, I, literally, 
California and everybody I ever knew drank. My dad died when he was 59 and he never found out about the program. I, he never knew, I don't know if he knew he was alcoholic, but anyway, my grandparents from Italy, they drank wine at lunchtime and they were gone by 65 and 55. It, I just thought that drinking was what you did. I was a brownie and a Catholic and a Girl Scout. And I just, how could I be alcoholic? Anyway, fast forward. So now I'm sucking something through a straw out of a rug one morning. And I, uh, <laughs> the kids, you know, are nursing a baby somewhere in the back of the house. So, and I thought, you know, I wonder if the lady next door has these kind of troubles. You know, you know, and, and, and truly, I just didn't know that. I, so I am really grateful that I finally found out what that I was alcoholic. And what I would really like to speak where I know we're just a minute or something, but I'd like to mention the incredible gift of the higher power. Uh, I spent so many years trying to figure out what God was, wasn't, mad at the Catholic, all that and recovering this and and I just call God love now and I don't think I meant it when I said I turned my life and will over and please use me. Oh, there we go. <laughs> but I am being used. I was called this morning by someone they were having a whole big problem in the meeting and the police came and dragged the guy and the late girl said, What should we do? I said, You should pray for the guy that that caused all this trouble. Never dawned on her to do that. She thought it was a legal advice. Anyway, I'm being used. Use up the tiger. Hi, I'm Loretta, and I'm from Jamestown, California. Not Virginia, not New York. At any rate, um, how do you condense a life in two minutes? I'll try. I was a resident of Oahu some years ago, and um, as a very young person, (laughs) my life changed rather abruptly. Uh, I was living in Manalani Heights with my uh, birth family and an older sister, and one Sunday morning, we heard some racket, and I saw a Japanese zero fly over our house. Uh, didn't stay in Hawaii too long after that, as all dependents were asked to go back to the States, which I did. And that was the last time I lived with my father. But I know life changed for a lot of people at that time, and so did mine. Uh, from that time until December 14, 1980, I spent a lot of years trying to get good. I really wanted all of you people to just love me. Uh, Somehow or other, that didn't quite happen. Mm -hmm. But I did find a few victims along the way, (laughs) (laughs) including my husband, who arrested me for drunk in public and threw me in Orange County Jail. Uh, (laughs) I had my revenge. I married that guy. (laughs) (laughs) And we married on and off for 43 years and had two beautiful daughters. he passed away some years ago, and a life continues. And out of that, I've learned I don't have to be codependent on a person. Um, and as the years went by in our marriage, I learned that too. There's only one person, one thing, entity, excuse me, that I must rely on, and that's my higher power. Um, I hit my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous 
dead. And then when I left, I was filled with hope and gratitude. I knew I would keep coming back, and I have from this day. I just want to make sure Linda W. that has 38 years, uh, we didn't hear from her if you are here, um, otherwise we'll ask you. Um, we've got on deck Wave Ann with 36, John Mason with 36, and Betsy R. with 36. Come on now. My name is Rick McCain, I'm an alcoholic. My spirit name is White Eagle. Hi, White Eagle. Uh, I bring greetings from Vancouver, Canada. I uh, had to mention to the chairman I didn't see many Canadians on the on the uh, on the pamphlet, but uh, I just wanted to uh, reminisce a little bit just for a few minutes because what can you say about God and His infinite wisdom? But circumstances for me uh, in March 20th, 1981, were just like anybody else's here, when you're at the end of your rope. What you don't know is that there's a power greater than yourself working at that moment in time. We only figure that out as time goes by, as the old timers in this room could attest to. And alcoholism has got, you know, as in the power, it's got nothing to do with age. You know, it's our illness, part of it, has nothing to do with alcohol, as I understand. In our book, it talks about the problem is centered in the mind, you know, called obsessiveness. And they say that the spiritual problem is what we're blocked off from, as quoted in the book. But we need to be physically sober in order to get the, the benefit from the recipe. And so this is where this coming to these things and see, you just fly right by. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in, uh, in uh, you know, I had the great benefit of being at four world conferences. I spoke at one. I drove from Winnipeg to uh, New York one time to see Bill Wilson's grave. I've been to Akron twice, and I've got to meet and greet Dr. Bob's son, and those are the biggest things that ever happened to me in my life, besides my kids. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bessie, and this is your college. Portland, Oregon, Friday is 828-82. Wow. throughout my sobriety. This is like watching movie trailer after movie trailer. <laughs> I'm like, I want to watch that movie. And I want to know you all. We are the blessed ones. We are the lucky ones. And love wins. And um, what I've learned from you, from your shiny eyes that greeted me when I got here, that scared the hell out of me when I got here, was that with God's love? seeping into my soul, and it made it okay to keep coming back no matter what. And I, by the time I got to the third step, God spoke to me. I heard your voice, and it wasn't mine. And he said, you don't ever have to drink again the rest of your life. I'm like, cool. 
If you keep coming back one day at a time. <laughs> and uh, I, I was uh, using at 10 and done at 19, a chronic alcoholic, and the drug use accelerated my um, alcoholism. And I am forever What I've learned from you, from your shiny eyes that greeted me when I got here, that scared the hell out of me when I got here, was that was God's blood seeping into my soul and it made it okay to keep coming back no matter what. And I, by the time I got to the third step, God spoke to me. I heard a voice and it wasn't mine. And he said, you don't ever have to drink again the rest of your life. I'm like, cool. If you keep coming back one day at a time. <laughs> and uh, I, I was uh, using at 10 and done at 19, a chronic alcoholic, and the drug use accelerated my um, alcoholism. And I am forever humbled and grateful to be here with you guys. Thank you for starting the meeting. And I, yeah, I want to God's last name was still down, and you taught me different. 
I came here, you know, when I was out there drinking and using, I thought I was God at times because I used to go to a certain bar and the bartender would say, Jesus Christ, you're back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for getting that one. Um, <laughs> and I love, I love the long timers in you. I love watching people that have more time than I have. You know, I, our friend Frank Honeycutt used to run this long time meeting for many years. He used to be the chairman. And he used to tell me every time he saw me, he said, John, he said, I've been sober ever since I know now. And I took that to heart. And I've been sober ever since I know now. You taught me how to work this program. You taught me not to drink, to go to meetings, to work the steps, and stay involved in service and help others. And that's what I do today. I thank you for my life. Thank you. Thank
for me. Uh, I, uh, I think it's genetic. I, I didn't like me when I was you know, born, but God was in me when I was born. Uh, it's low self-esteem, the whole world. Uh, I wanted to end it up, I wanted, you know, besides being getting druggy, that was just a, 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 a sideshow. I wanted to kill everybody that gave, gave me the wrong look. Uh, and and uh, my bottom was, uh, you know, why waste bullets? I just wanted to kill myself. And uh, that spiritual shock kind of like led me to and all steps. Thank you. On deck, we have Pete A and Joe A. Hello, everyone. My name is Terry Akins. I'm from Dayton, Ohio. My friends call me Goosey. Hey, Goosey. I am um, supposed to express uh, my strengths, cares, and hopes. But first, I need to qualify. So one night I was in a bar, and I was sitting there, and I had to see other two, two guys next to me. One must have been a drinker, a social drinker. The other guy might have been a drunkard. And here I sat. So the bartenders gave us three beers, and the first guy, he looked down, and he seen them flying it. He scooted it back and said, give me another one. The second guy looked down, he seen a flying his beer. And he took it out like this and looked around and threw it on the floor and drank it back straight down. Me, I looked down and there's a fly in my beer. So I picked it up and I said, spit it out, spit it out. <laughs> That's who I was. The only thing in the beer bottle for me was more. And I suffered from alcoholism and drug addiction. For me, the thing is, it was never about stopping was staying stopped. So I was in this program way before I got sober. And I learned something about myself that I, would, I thought I was too young to be an alcoholic, and I just couldn't conceive the rest of my life without a drink or a drug. But God taught me something. And I'm a blessed, blessed person. Not so much a miracle, but I am a blessed person, and that God loves me. And I found God about six years ago when I had a heart attack. And I don't believe in God, I don't trust in God, but I have trust in God, and I know that today. When I turn my will and life to care of God, it's a daily occurrence for me, and I never regret it. So I thank you very much. Oh, this is my first time here. Colleen, I'm an alcoholic. So I wanted to share about um, 
my family afterwards, because the first time I read that chapter, I just thought, not my family. It'll never be what's described um, happily in the big book. And I just, every time I read it, it was not my family. And then um, one day a family member was going to do something for me. And they said to me, I don't know why I do things for you. You hate everything I do. And I said, oh my gosh, they know. <laughs> and so the next time this family member was going to do something for me, I, I just said a prayer. I said, God, please don't let me hate the next thing this person does. And what happened is the hate was removed from my heart. It was not only the next thing, but all the hate that I had for that person. My relationship with that person changed with that. So God does more than I asked for. Breaking out part. I don't include the place called uh, Thursdays where happy hour never ends in Sunset Beach, but I'm also a member of uh, Lucky 13 on, on the beach meeting with Prue. Um, <clears throat> I was going to help out a little. Our, our gal here had mysterious things that involved. Uh, a bunch of guys started to go to the International Convention in um, Louisiana, and they uh, called halfway there, and... Uh, Cedar City, Utah, and asked for a place to camp out in uh, Beaver, Utah. The sheriff was there, said they could stop there in a the way. They stopped there in a the way, had a great time. The sprinklers went on, whole thing went on. They decided to do this every year. And a bunch of guys from Salt Lake City come down dressed as cheerleaders and uh, entertain us. And uh, they have this little thing where they talk about how to catch a beaver. And the secret is you got to sneak up on it and give it a kiss. Thanks. Hi, my name is Jennifer, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety date is November 8, 1984. Um, at the age of 17, I was a violent blackout drinker, um, I, and as a result, I almost killed my six-year-old sister. And uh, at that point, I needed to stop drinking and I couldn't. And I um, was gonna go out with a suicide attempt, but I was um, interrupted by my mom and I was taken to treatment. And um, that's where they took me to my first AA meeting because I thought I was crazy. And I went to the meetings and I saw the hope and the laughter. And it felt like a ton of bricks had been taken off my back because I wasn't crazy, I was just an alcoholic and there was a solution. And I'm so grateful to be here. I never thought I would live to be 30, let alone have 33 years of sobriety. And um, especially the last few years, have been, um, I've turned my well life over to God, and it's been so magical. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. And I'm an alcoholic. And I got my cookie before. I stopped. I tried to stop drinking um, on my own five years before I actually got sober, which was September 29, 1986, in Virginia. My home group today is in Seattle, Washington. Yeah. Ooh, some Seattle. Anyway, um, I just, so every day I woke up, I said, I'm not going to drink, and every day I drank. It was demoralizing and defeating, and it was a nightmare, as we all know. Um, but I have so little time, i got to say one thing about the person that reaches their hand out to a newcomer. 
And that person's in this room who 32 years ago reached out to me and kept reaching out to me and kept reaching out to me and saved my life. It's Colleen, she's sitting right here. Yeah. And uh, never underestimate what it is when you reach your hand out. So I do that still because of what it did for me. So thank you, Colleen, and thank all of you. My name is Ernie, I'm grateful for coming out of Holland. December 24th, uh, my union sent me to the rehab. Uh, my medical chart said chronic alcoholic. Uh, there was a hole in my soul you could rather truck through. An emptiness that I knew I could never, that alcohol and drugs stopped working on. And I had no hope. Counselor made my first, the first step. And what brain cells were left, I understand. Because the more I tried to control my drinking, the more I had to control my life was. I found hope that first day meeting and a voice was telling me, I listen to what your people share and the answers to all my problems will come true. Which is true. Uh, my mind was still out there, but my, my, my heart found the love in these rooms. That still is there that when, uh, when I think things are not going all right, you know, I made that decision to, to run to an AA meeting and uh, that's the solution. You know, I have sober feet, a sober heart, my mind is in other places, but uh, I keep coming. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's no one in this room after us, so we're going to go from instead of 3.5 to 1, 4 o'clock. <laughs> My name's Ruth. I'm an alcoholic. Ruth. Uh, Joan P. from Y and I. John H. for 31 years. Um, you know, I should have called before. That might have been Colleen. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, the 33, 34 years. So, uh, come on. 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 Come and then my dad gets sober when I'm in third grade, and he takes me to Alateen. And now I'm at Alateen, and I need a drink. It's just another place where I needed to try to fit in, and try to feel normal, and try to be a part of. But I had that disease of separateness. And so, you know, men and women drink especially for effect. When I started drinking, that was heaven. It was a spiritual experience for me to drink that things changed. So when I came here at 25 years old, things changed. And um, there's some people, you know, you talked about um, remembering. I wanted to just be an old gray-haired woman like Maggie Kelly who had her shit together, right, and feel good. But it's taken me this long. I grew up in AA. AA raised me. I can finally say I've got that peace. So another great old gray-haired lady that used to come here, Marguerite, she'd say, I wish you a slow recovery.
met her in the bar in Waikiki. We ended up going to California, and we drank the whole time. Coming back here, I think in 1978, I, I, I work in the film industry, so I wasn't really working. So she come pick me up. I say, okay, the, the, the show is over. So pick me up at the airport, and then we were going home. She, she was, I was driving, she said, you know what? I went through this AA thing that I, I'm gonna, I said, what for? What is that? I thought you were talking about AAA, you know, <laughs> you know, car insurance or something. She said, no, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, man, then I, what for? You, you, you're all right, you're not drinking that bad. Then I'm thinking, oh, maybe it's good, they more for me to drink. <laughs> she already let me drink with her. Then I ended up going to AA, so, so here we are, family. Okay, John, I got you. Uh, Nikki, Zeke, Don C. On deck. So that we're into the 30. Go. My name's John. I'm an alcoholic. John! And uh, my uh, California higher power, otherwise known as a CHP, helped get me into these rooms. I, uh, my sobriety date is uh, June uh, 28th of 1987, and uh, my uh, I was coming back from a family birthday party, you know, heading through the Kalsakut Tunnel in the Bay Area, and uh, my wife been. Uh, trying to control my drinking and she insisted I get behind the wheel even though she was six months pregnant and I was hammered and I told out my car uh, although it still uh, traveled for a little while and uh, I had run into another drunk and we both said to get the hell out of here and uh, my solution for that was to call him sick the next day and uh, it's a total blackout and my pregnant wife had to bail me out and absolutely convinced that I would end up getting behind the wheel again. And I found my way into these rooms and all that time now. My name is Nikki. I'm a great alcoholic. settled in on Tuesday my doctor called and she said you have a mass on your chest and I said you know what I'm here I'm gonna heal and God knows what the future is gonna bring and you know what that's the God's honest truth I'm not worried because you're my family and I'm here to heal thank you yeah. <laughs> my name is Janice D and I'm from 
from Carl's Grove, California. My sobriety date is 102687. Don't even try it. Um, just kidding. I tried to stop drinking. <laughs> I tried to stop drinking every Monday morning when I felt like crap. And um, Monday mornings, I just would say, I'm not going to do it anymore, I'm not going to do it anymore, and I did that for years, until uh, someone in my family was in the Betty Ford Center, and I went to Family Week, did I realize what Alcoholics Anonymous was and what it could do for me, until I worked the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and got a sponsor, which I asked her to be my temporary sponsor, that was the first woman I ever trusted in my whole life, and um, I'm so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, thank you, Joanne and Buzz, for having this meeting. We get John C., Sunshine, Robert R. We get all those? No. All right, then, is it, oh, we got, yeah? You? Okay, and I'm also 30, so I'm in that group, so I'm going to go while you guys are walking. Uh, my name is Joanne, I'm an alcoholic. And I'm a six-story and uh, pathetic woman that was like dancing on the tables one minute and sitting in the curb, you know, uh, with the, the torn pantyhose, you know, and the party dress on, with the, uh, you know, looking like, you know, God, she seems like such a nice girl. Um, I came to you in 81 because the judge thought it would be a good idea. Uh, I, I, after 18 months, I was cured. I went back out in 88. I came back in on my hands and knees. Um, and I got into service. Uh, I said the hardest thing that was that, that I didn't realize was the requirement for membership. I said, I need help. And uh, somebody came over and talked to me in a really soft voice, and she said she would help me, and she's been helping me for the last 30 years. Um, she got me into service. I brought donuts, I, uh, and I became a secretary of meeting. And I went out, and I found this guy to come and speak, this old guy that seemed like a nice guy. And um, I heard him speak, and my sponsor leaned over and said, there's your man. I had no idea. I was not interested. Um, he, uh, this guy, he was a guy that was in, that had started out in prison, got out, got pardoned from the governor, went through training, became a peace officer, which is a really rare event, and had 30-something, uh, anyway, um, now after, just recently retired after 33 years uh, carrying a badge um, as a parole agent. And uh, we've had a really good life. And the, the life is not only have we been of service in AA, but we've been of service in our families, and that's where it really counts. Thanks.
he's already familiar and uh, of this place. Um, I grew up right down in, in uh, Kamaki. Uh, I come from a single parent, no dad. We're really poor. I mean, if you had that kind of life, you would drink too. <laughs> you know, that was my biggest excuse, I guess. You know, it's rough life. I didn't have a dad. Um, I didn't see like I had the stuff that was on TV. Um, I had a lot of um, uh, resentments. I had a big chip on my shoulder. Besides being self-centered and selfish, you know, um, I didn't find that out till later until I got into alcoholics anonymous. And uh, I went through um, countless car wrecks, treatment centers, hospitals, and then three marriages. And then my third marriages, you know, I got my kids, and I was at a black treatment center, and I um, met this man who was uh, now past Don Maloney, who came up to me and said, um, you need help. And then by that time, my scorecard was a zero. And I don't know if I would have went back out and drank, probably because that's what I do. Alcohol is my solution, and it just made everything okay. And I thank God for that person that came up and reached out to me, and I said, yes, help me. And with you, and you should need a fellowship. And um, since then, it has changed my life. Alcoholics, um, to me, is like um, you see it and show up, and it's the easy way.
I've kept it ever since. I sign everything, patty cake, even my checks. Um, you guys taught me well. I had so much pain when I grew up as a little girl, and I don't know where this stuff comes from in your mind. And I hated myself, and I just wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough as a child. I wasn't good enough as a teenager. I wasn't good enough. And damn, I'm so glad I didn't kill myself, you know, because I just, it just didn't, wasn't working for me. It hurt so much. And I try and talk about it. People would say, you're feeling sorry for yourself. And I really hated hearing that. I was so glad when I got sober because I hadn't planned on getting sober, but I couldn't stand the way I felt in my life any longer. And when I got sober, my home group loved me until I learned to love myself. And I made 29 years October the 13th, thanks to you guys. <laughs>
praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Many of us exclaim, what an order, I can't go through with this. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain any maintain anything perfect, perfect adherence to these principles. We are not safe. The point is, is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. <coughs> our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal events and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if you were stop. Thank you very much. Can I please someone uh, read the 12 traditions? Hi, my name is Jackie. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jackie. Hi. Um, number one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, the loving God as he may express himself in our group Our leaders are but trusted servants that we do not govern. Three, the only requirement for AA membership is the desire to stop drinking. Four, each group should be anonymous except in matters affecting other groups of AA or AA as a whole. Five. Each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to alcoholic who still suffers. Six, a, an AA group ought never endorse, finance, or lead, lend the AA name to any related facility outside enterprise, lease problems of money, property, and prestige labor. Divert us from We're our primary purpose. We're our seven. <laughs> Every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight. Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine. AA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10. Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name ought never been drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. 12. And all right now is there anyone new to AA please give us your first name so we can welcome you is there anyone new to AA that we can Welcome you. Is there anyone outside the 925 area code? Okay, now we will go ahead and read from the day's reflection. My name is Fernando Markaholic. We're uh, sitting in for the secretary. 
There's extra books up here if anybody needs some. December 22nd. All right, now we'll get right into it. It's uh, principles, not personalities. The way our worthy alcoholics have sometimes tried to judge the less worthy is, as we look back on it, rather comical. Imagine, if you can, one alcoholic judging another one. The Language of the Heart, page 37. Who am I to judge anyone? When I first entered the fellowship, I found that I liked everyone. After all, it was going to help me to a better way of life without alcohol. The reality was that I couldn't possibly like everyone, nor they me. As I grown in the fellowship, I learned to love everyone just from listening to what they had to say. That person over there, or that one right here, may be the one God has chosen to give me the message I need for today. I must always remember to play principles above personalities. Awesome. I'm Fernando, alcoholic. Hey, Fernando. I remember I was, uh, I got 23 years of sobriety. I live in Los Angeles. And, uh, this is my second time around, but this is really interesting. When I was uh, about five years sober, I, I got a job in uh, Sacramento from L.A., and I came up, and I started uh, helping managing a body and fender shop. And then I wanted to, uh, I didn't hook up with my program right away. Uh, I hit the, uh, the traditions groups over there in Sacramento, which is a great fellowship there. But I, uh, I started getting involved in, in life. Because five years of sobriety, the uh, promises started kicking in again. And I wanted to buy some property. I bought five acres up in Orville, and I was putting a trailer on there. And, uh, you know, had all these dreams of building a cabin and so forth like we all do. <laughs> and life was going good. But I was neglecting my, my, my spiritual side. And it got to a point where the trailer, uh, I had troubles getting the trailer up there. The lights wouldn't work. The car heated up. I had to drop it off and leave it at a farmer's. Uh, you know, anyone that had mercy on me get that trailer out of the road because they, I couldn't pull it no more. The car wouldn't do it. Uh, I came back uh, almost ready to drink to the fellowship in uh, Sacramento on the, um, the tradition, tradition group. And, and I was just sitting there, you know, just totally dazed. At the end of the meeting, a guy came up to me, and he, and he said, Here's a, here, hi, welcome to AA. Here's, here's a pamphlet of how, what we are and everything. It's really kind. And I said, hey, I got five years. And then he said, you got five years? And he got on my face and goes, you should be a secretary. You should be doing those things. <laughs> you know, and, and he was all pissed off. And, and, and I responded properly. I got up, I said, yes, sir. And I got three commitments right after that. I got a, uh, I started running the, uh, the men's meeting at the, called the, it, they taken the, the name out of the top of top. It's called uh, uh, Rebellious Dogs all the way. <laughs> Rebellion is page 73 on the top and top. Rebellion Dog, and they use it as a verb. Rebellion Dogs all the way. 
I took that commitment. Then I took a commitment of answering the phone from midnight to 8 in the morning. From the, uh, at that time, the central office will forward your phone number to their any calls that will come in. Usually people looking for meetings. I, I didn't get any distress calls, but I was, I was doing that shift. And then I took another meeting. The point I'm getting to, I can hear Jeff in the back of my head. What's the point, Fernando? <laughs> I was going to go. Uh, I got a job dropping off dog food. I was going to y Yuba City. It was early in the morning. I was really busy with this AA, really busy working. I'm back. And I'm in a good, good. Now I'm, I'm spiritually high because I'm. I'm just serving. I'm thinking about others, thinking about others. I'm so busy. When I got to Yuba City, it was about 7 in the morning. I, was taking, I had a, a lift gate. I was taking a, a, about a 1,500-pound pallet full of uh, dog food into the, to the feed place. I was going to drop it and push it around and stuff. So you got to use a lot of... And then I, it's got the, the plate is like this, and it's got two chains holding the uh, back of the, of the, of the bob, bobtail. I was pulling the tread off, and I got too close to the edge and dropped it too late. And when I dropped it, I caught my, my foot in between the pallet of 1500, and I couldn't get out, and and I, and I lost my balance, and I was falling backwards. You know, and I was like four feet off the ground, so it was going to tear all this apart. I was just stuck. I couldn't pull the foot. But you know, I had the presence presence of, of being of service, the love. Ah. I was like a high on something. <laughs> Whatever happens, happens, you know. I'm going backwards, you know. I just did not have like uh, the... Tr and all of a sudden, I felt two hands. Boom! A hand, and then the, the kid, boom, flung me to the other side. He flung me so hard back up that I almost went to the other side. Luckily, I was stuck right there. And I looked back, and I said, where you come from? He goes, oh, I'm coming to work early. I'm just watching you unload. Oh, uh, 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 guy that worked. So, so the point I'm making is. I have been my happiest when I've been my busiest. When I look back, my first year in AA, I had to go to uh, chemistry chemistry school. I wanted to do air conditioning. Uh, and I had to go to uh, interview school and AA, work, family. And you got to get some sleep, too. Maintenance. Like, and it's so busy. And I look back. That, that was, I, I was a spiritual experience, and I was so happy, you know, because I was out of myself, out of my normal thinking. I was thinking about others. And, and I really believe that's what the, our triangle in AA is all about, recovery, unity, and service. Now, this is my second time around. I got 23 years now. I should have had like 35 because I came in 1981. And I got all the beautiful promises, the real estate, the offices, all the glory, all the honor, and all that stuff. And then I forgot about AA and I took a drink at a, you know, at, at a wedding. Oh, it's a good cause, right? Your sister's getting married. Again. <laughs> and again. You know? And that, I lost everything. I ended up with a hamster or a hamper. I don't remember what it was. But <laughs> at 36 years old, I ended up in front of my mom's lawn again. So Gardner had mercy for me, gave me a ride over there. I had a house. I had a Mercedes Benz. We opened up a real estate office. We were selling securities, bonds, and all kinds. Of, you know, we had all these great 
syndications and everything. But without that, that triangle, the power's in here, servicing, helping, and, 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 you know, recovery. Now life is good. I, I go, go to Hawaii, I, go to, I come up here, I live in L.A., I drive up here, the in-laws and everything, and, and I have a good understanding with my higher power. You know, I don't really have to, the, you know, life is a serious, I think someone said it, acceptance and correction. Acceptance and, and correct. And re be able to open up and correct, like, like when the guy spoke to me. So that's what I like about AA. And with that, I hope, uh, Merry Christmas. The spirit of Christmas. I had a lady that got two years. She got, uh, she, she went into the prison for, uh, not prison for, uh, she went into um, jail. She chose jail other than, than doing, uh, you know, working on the freeways. And she said, you know, they handed me a big book over there. They didn't know I was an AA. And she said, when I read the last chapter, the last thing, around 2, 3 in the morning, they let me out at 6 in the morning up to 50 days or something like that. You know, the higher power uh, put in her situation. She just accomplished two years, and I got the spirit of Christmas with her joy, her gratitude, the coins and the cake and stuff. And, and, and wow. So, all right, I said I would be quiet. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Brandon. Thank you, guys. Uh, we don't clap over here. The kids, ALA, they, they clap a lot, a little too much, like a bunch of walruses. All right, Keith. <laughs> Keith, I'm an alcoholic. You know, uh, I already, I, you know, this is, uh, this is me. I don't, I'm not a, a real judger since I've been in AA. When I was in NA, or when I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I was, a, I was an epic judger, right? But for whatever reason. Uh, when I came around the alcoholics, I, I, I try, you know, I have to, I have to fuck something up pretty good to understand how to do, get it right. Whoa. So, um, uh, I'm not a real judger. I, uh, I like to come and help, and, and, and I try to be of service, and, and I work in this field, and, uh, and I stay pretty busy. Um, I don't know if I'm as excited about it as you are. <laughs> or, um, maybe I'm too busy. Uh, but it's uh, good. It's 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 a uh, it's a beautiful life. It's great to watch people overcome their struggles. It's it's great to see people come back. And um, you know, I always. It's, it's nice to see somebody struggle with the literature. I remember I did, and I remember how wonderful it was when I was in here. There was just a couple people in here and uh, struggling with the literature a little bit. Good times for me. Right? Now I just have to slow down. Keep, you know, I'm thinking of my head. Um, but it's beautiful. I love it here. And I love how you said, um, how you said that this is, where, this, this is our foundation. I, if we forget this, everything else goes. These are our, our roots, and uh, you know, so many, so many people uh, are so self-important 
these days, right? On the phones, whatever. Worried about likes on Facebook or whatever you guys do. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I love it here. This is my social media here. <laughs> That's all. Thank you. I am Cheryl Nahal. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Cheryl. Normally, if I was not, if I wasn't coming to these meetings and seeking God in all my ways, I would, I probably would not have been able to handle it too much, too well. But I found that um, the more I pray, the more I keep God first, my higher power, who I choose, choose to call God. Um, as long as I keep Him first, then I, um, I was able to handle it better. judging I, I've been doing lately. I'm kind of like just surrender to just even trying to make this work, just letting me God just do it. I hear things from everybody. Keith, I watch you constantly meditating and, and praying or whatever you're doing. Um, and that's the principles, right? It's not the personality. It's just, you know, I just kind of suck in the stuff like this morning, the girls laughing over a little thing about anonymity and, and, and uh, it's good to hear that. It's good to see the smiling, you know. Good times. And we're always out there, you know, in our misery. Smiling. Uh, today, that's the judgment I made. Um, even with the, you know, the troubles that I just had recently. I've just let that all go. I mean, I talked about that forgiveness, the opposite of the resentment. And I, that's where I was getting that disease of resentment and that anger. And uh, they pulled me down through depression. So, um, you know, and I was listening to a lot of negativity on their part yesterday, and I just listened. I didn't say anything. 
but I even heard them repeat a lot of stuff that I said that they were like, come on, man, you're paranoid, man, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> now they're like sending me messages, hey, check this out. I don't even say anything back. I'm just like, I don't need that. I don't need that stuff. I know. Um, but it's kind of just funny. Um, I'm not really judging them. I'm just letting it. Letting that go. I know. I just like how God is working my part. And you just surrender. You know, I'm thinking of surrendering. And that's what it is. I just really surrender. All that was going on, say, you know, the beginning of my stuff, or the end, or whatever. I remember that day that I just said, this guy told me to pick my battles, and I was like, I'm going to pick my battles. I mean, I'm just fighting the battles that are coming to me. You know I mean? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's good. For today, it's just good. You know, whatever I'm doing, it's doing it right. Every day gets better. And so, I still get stupid thoughts. I had stupid thoughts in my head yesterday. Shook them off. Um, and I hope those go away. I had heard somebody share Friday um, on the, this time of year. You know, and that's, you know, this was my, um, November was my birthday as far as recovery. And, uh, I always had a trouble on my birthday, and then, like he mentioned, this time of year, just for some reason, um, it gets stressful. So I really look at those similarities now. When I first came, I really didn't, um, I didn't feel the similarities. I always felt the differences, and that's how my brain was wired. Just look at all the differences. Uh, something's working well in my life, because now all I do is I, I see the similarities. And, uh, Really, I feel a part of. I feel, I feel sick. I guess <laughs> I am. I'm a sick person, mm. and, I, and I realize that. Um, before, I just thought I was faking it so well that I wasn't sick that uh, I made other people believe that. that uh, I believed it myself. No. Yeah. Anyway, I'm out. I'm Fernando Alcoholic. Let's go ahead and uh, break for the seven traditions, please. We are self-supporting to our own contributions. And can I get a volunteer, please, to read the uh, promises? Anyway, we'll shake it up a little bit. (laughs) Thank you. Is that what we do? We read the promises? Yeah. Eric, I'm an Thank you. 
We think not. Work, 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 work. Thank you very much. Now we'll get back to our meeting. Let's go. Uh, if you have any, um, like he brought a, gr- a great subject of the topic that uh, I used to judge everybody before because I couldn't get those presents. You know, it was such a big deal all the time and, and getting in debt and all that stuff. But, you know, the seventh tradition has helped me right here. We're self-supporting. You know, uh, I've grown in the fellowship. I learned to love just from listening to what they had to say. That's what I get today. Ozzy. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you for coffee. You're on. <laughs> um, you know, I'm grateful for the I was in my head yesterday because someone uh, was taking my inventory, um, telling me that, um, I mean, I told them that they were too hard on themselves, you know, that you got it, you can do it, you know, you know give yourself a break. And uh, they pulled my coat and told me that they just wanted to hang out with me, they didn't want me, that I always was teaching. So it hurt my feelings because... I thought I was a pretty cool person to hang out with, you know, and am I always teaching, and where does that come from? Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I accept it today as a compliment, because I do have something to say. You know, and that's just the bottom line. And, um, you know, I want the best for everyone, and, you know, maybe I am teaching um, when I interact with people. And I, you know, take my inventory, and, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, because one of the things about that is um, I, I'm not going to allow anyone to stop me, to allowing me to be who I am, who God has created me to be. Because I, that's God's business. And, and my responsibility today is to be the best person that I can be, to stay prayed up and my meditation prayer, and be there to help others. Because, you know, I was helping them. I'm opening my gym membership to let them come to the gym with me. But, you know, as it is, not everyone is going to like me, and I'm not going to like everyone. And this message was truly, you know, what I needed to hear. And I'm going to love that person unconditionally mm. and, and, and respect them and their opinion of me. But I'm going to love me because God has given me a platform, and that platform is this program. And that's who I'm about. I'm about this program. I'm about doing the next right thing. I'm about uh, what I'm doing in my personal life, it transcends into the steps. It transcends into being the hand that's out there to help someone else. You know? And I'm grateful for this fellowship. I'm grateful that I have a place to come. I'm grateful um, that I have uh, commitment. You know, My commitment is that my life is a living amends because of all the hell that I took people through. You know, Today I'm working on my eighth step. You know, and I get to, you know, my sponsors are real hard ass. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm having to pray for these people that's on my list, you know, and that I'm having to actually list what the situation was and what it, what harm it did, you know. And so it's thorough. And I've done an eight step before, more than once, you know, but this time it has a deeper, it has depth to it because I understand this program a little bit more 
I, I understand it just a little bit more. I don't know everything, but I can attest to when I first came along, you know, and as, as uh, Fernando said, you know, those promises that started to present themselves. And, you know, I arrived and I could have a drink. And all those things that I had gotten, you know, slowly just left, you know, the material things, those relationships. And coming back this time, it's about having known, having experienced God's love, having, you know, sincerely come in the first time working steps because of the desperation of the lifestyle that I had before I got here. You know, having seen the fruits of this program, because, see, I had a God of what I understood at that point. I had the religion, you know, but I didn't have the spirituality. So coming back this time, you know, I get to really know a little bit about if I do just, if I did the work then, if I do even more, what I'm getting to is that the depth of the steps now is a little bit deeper. Because a few 24 hours ago when I had to do my sixth and my seventh, I had to get some extra literature, approved literature, to really take a look at what those character defects were. So I have a better understanding, and I think the more that we do this, it's just like doing exercise, the more that we do this, the better understanding that we get. And it's an individual program, everybody is different, you know. And I'm glad that I have something that keeps me focusing on making myself, improving myself, you know. And the beauty of this program is that, you know, the gratitude, because there's people in my life that love me, you know, there's people in my life that want to see me succeed. You know, and it's people, you know, and it's another, other alcoholics, you know, who love me unconditionally because they know, you guys know, you know, you guys, when I, I can talk to someone and immediately in this room, then immediately, you know, there's a solution. You know, I, there's only one thing that I want to do in this life, and that's to be the best person I could be just for today, because tomorrow is really not promised to I'm going to keep coming back, I'm going to keep suiting up, I'm going to keep showing up, and I'm going to remember, you know, it's principles, it's not personality. Thank you for letting me Thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah, my name is a bit on my heart. Yeah, as Ozzy was speaking, it just reminded me of a lot of things. I can remember coming in here and people who didn't really know me welcomed me and embraced me. And... You know, there was a lot of different personalities in the room. Each individual personality. There was also a set of principles. And those principles were the principles of this program that that kind of superseded those personalities. In other words, the, the individual pers personality took a back seat to the group of traditional uh, 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 See, the thing is the principles in these traditions, when they talk about when they talk about that 12th tradition, it just simply means that that we don't allow ourselves, our personal personalities, to get in the way of the principles that we're taught to to uh, to practice on a regular basis. See, see, we're given a set of principles to live by. So, so, so we we actually take those principles and put them ahead of our own personalities. As a matter of fact, it makes my personality better every time I practice a personal of AA. 
those differences don't necessarily go away, but the principles are consistent. The difference in our personality, and I think our personality begins to take on a different change, and, and we begin to perceive things differently once we start to practice the principles. You know, I, I came in and they said, get a sponsor and do these many meetings and work the steps. And, and I, I'm trying to choose somebody I like. You know, when it came down, I, I'm going to work with a guy. And, and so, but, but I, it, it, it was more deeper than that. And it wasn't until I, somebody shared and told my story. And I saw somebody that I wanted what they had. Not that I was attracted to their personality. I, I was more attracted to, to the message they had. And that's what sold me. And that's the person I chose. And then there was, there was a big difference. It wasn't that I, you know, I can't say I, I didn't like my sponsor, you know, and, and I didn't going in, but I like what he had, and that's what I wanted. And I chose him, and I got the same sponsor today that I had that I first got back in 2002. And, and actually, there's still some differences in terms of our personalities, but he's been consistent in terms of the principles. And I think that's what gets us right now, and sometimes we have to we have to allow those to take to take precedent over our individual personalities. Because if we want to go on our own, and I know I went out on my own with my own set of values, with my own set of principles, and they didn't get me nowhere. I mean, they got me here. <laughs> You know, but when I, but when I, you know, this program offers us some principles to live by, and they talk about a design for living. And this program, you know, a lot of times we, we yeah, I feel my mind don't always expand to see the big picture. I'm looking at these little bitty things, and sometimes that can be, you know, the best thing for me in some cases, and the worst thing in some cases, because if I look at it negative, in a negative way, somebody talked about not allowing the negativity to keep me from moving forward. And I was just thinking about <clears throat> personal relationships. You know, even in my own family, to where they're, they're, I still have some issues. I, you know, I do. It don't mean since I've been, I haven't had a drink in a long time, I still got other issues. And then I got, you know, I, I want to call, be a shot caller, and I'm really not a shot caller. I always thought I was, but I'm not. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. You know, and I have to step back. I have to always be aware of my party and how my personality, my individual personality really affects other people and how, as, a, as opposed to practicing the principles, I'm trying to impose my wheel up on somebody. And, 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 and that's not good. That don't show much growth. It's when I'm able to apply these principles in situations, that means I'm taking a back seat. My personality is taking a back seat. And, and that's where I need to be. And to me, that means humility. When I can be humble and allow other, other things to control my thinking and my direction and my relationship with other people, then, for me, that's a sign of growth. 
And that's exactly what I try to practice today. It's the principles that I've been taught here. You know, I mean, I practice my principles long enough. So it's time for me to try something. You have to do some, some different stuff in order to get some different results. And as a result of it, these promises that you're talking about, somebody read the promises, is beginning to, to come true. And, and toward alcohol like myself, which was a low-bottom drunk, I mean, you know, because I lost everything. I got homeless and slept on outside. I was under the bridge and, and went to jail a lot of times. And my family left me and a whole bunch of stuff. And now I got everything back plus more today. Is it because I'm this guy, this great guy who know how to do this? No, it's because I'm still, I'm still that guy, you know, who's practicing a set of principles that I didn't have before. And, and, I, and you know, I got a, a high power, God, who's restored me to more than I ever had. You know, I lost everything, but now I got more than I ever had before. Not, not in the sense of material stuff, but I got some stuff inside. I got some peace and serenity inside that money can't buy. See, 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 uh, man. And it's just a result of doing something different, practicing a new set of principles, applying the principles of this program to my life. Well, you know, I'm just glad to be here. I wish everybody have a nice holiday. And, and uh, they still talking about, people still telling me to rest my voice. I, I just, uh, I had a good checkup. They say, oh, Bill, you still need to rest your voice. They say it takes, it takes six to eight weeks. And my eight weeks is not up yet. They say, going those six to eight weeks, you, you need to rest your voice. And although my voice is kind of getting a little bit better, you know, uh, it's hard for me to stay quiet that long. Because like Austin was saying, is that if you got something to share, you, you can't hardly, you, you can't hide it. I mean, it's like lighting a lamp and putting it under a bush or a basket. If you, let, if you got a light, you got to let that light shine some kind of way. And for me, by letting my little light shine, is to share what this program has done for me and, and what God has done for me with others. So, so, so maybe they'll try the program and try God and try both. I tried both. I, I did, you know, came here and said, God sent me here, or the program sent me to God, or whatever. Some people, I, I heard it both ways, but either way, with that combination, I don't think you could lose. With the principles of this program and our trust and belief in God, our high power, I, I really don't see no way you can really go, you can really lose with that combination. It's a winning combination. These principles is, is powerful. They're powerful. When we look at both twelves, we see the word spiritual come up, and she talked about being spiritual. When we look at the 12 traditions, we look at spiritual. When we look at the 12 steps, we look at spiritual. And, 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 and basically, 
That's just trying to emphasize the spiritual aspect of the program. And realize that we're not doing it. We're not, we, you know, we can't do this thing by ourselves. You know? And it's okay for to depend on God. There's nothing wrong with saying, I, I trust God. I depend on God. I mean, that's healthy. So, so I'm not ashamed of that. Because that's where I am. And that's all I got. <laughs> Thanks, Cheryl, for a door and uh, herself for being here. Yeah. yeah. Jacqueline. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm not going to I don't do too much talking, but this reading that they hit me, as far as judging, I know back in the day, you know, I got my last DUI June last June. And one ten years prior to that, and another one seven years prior to that, and I never really got it because I didn't want to accept being an alcoholic. It's like what alcoholic? I don't I'm an alcoholic. I don't be drinking alcohol and shaking and shit. I'm a beer drinker. Blood lights is my thing. So that was my past to not be an alcoholic. But then again, I never really thought about all the DUIs either. It's like, I, I, I kind of remember about 15 years ago, I was really, really bad with it. I would keep a beer between my legs 24 hours a day to the point that a lot of people in the house I would go with, like, you're alcoholic, man. Every time I see you got a beer. So I would hide the beer and I would drink it up before I go over to the house. The program showed me all of this here. I never really thought about it. It's like, why are you going to hide it? Just don't drink it. But now I'm going to drink it before I go up in there because I don't want them to see. I just left 30 minutes ago and I had one. Now I got another. So I was in denial of that a lot of, a lot of years to the point that I just wouldn't accept being, being let. I looked at it like, how in the hell is that damn can right there more powerful than you? I just couldn't understand that. You know, I always thought I was in control of shit. But the, the police wasn't lying. I mean, all these DUIs said something. That was just one, uh, the reason I had to mention that. Just like when you go to a party, you don't dance until your song come on. I don't talk until something hits me. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I almost fell off the wagon a couple days ago. You know, I do the cooking in my family. My mother and daddy are gone now, so. My daddy from Mississippi taught me how to cook just like somebody's grandma. So I'm cooking a gumbo uh, <laughs> this, this Christmas. And uh, I got the money, I got all this. I, but I deal with the right every damn life. Now I got a lot of pressure on me as far as, you know what I'm saying, you really want to do it. Before, I used to, like I cooked this Thanksgiving, cooked the turkey, the whole get down with it. And I didn't drink anything. Normally, I had to drink. That just makes it all fall in place. The food tastes better. It's just everything is just right. I didn't drink this Thanksgiving. I'm not going to drink this uh, this Christmas. But the pressure's still here. It's like, and I've learned up in here, we take little shit and blow it way into big shit. You know what I'm saying? Because now that I look at it, it's like, what the fuck? Just go buy all the shit and cook. What's the big deal? But 
I'm making a big deal. Okay, well, I got to get some fresh crab. I got to go way to the hospital and work it up. I got to go find this. I got to go. I'm just putting all this shit on myself for nothing. The other day, I, I said to myself, two days ago, it's like, shit, I got to have me a cold. So I'm saying, no. Because when you do that, you're going you to open that can of worms up. It ain't just going to be that cold. You know what I'm saying? You may just have enough sense to drink one or two to set it down, but you didn't open the can up already. So that leaves you room for the next day. Okay, well, I did good today. You know what I'm saying? I just probably drunk two tall cans. That was it. You know what I'm saying? I was just got a little blood, wasn't drunk, wasn't dry. Now I'm getting an illusion of you can handle this shit. But being in these rooms and being clean before and going off clean, going off. It's finally sinking in to the point that I just don't want to get that can, that first can, because I know and I'm not stupid. You know what I'm saying? I'm not the shopper, but I'm not stupid. I know if I grab that one can, it ain't going to just be that one can. A couple days later, it's going to be another can. Oh, it's a good reason. I'm out here detailing my car. I'm hot, I need a cold, because those was my tradition. You know what I'm saying? I've been in Stockton a long time, and it's hot out there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> ain't nothing like washing a car, detailing a car. With some cold ones up in there, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that mindset, you know what I'm saying, slowly, I haven't heard, had an earth thing, you know what I'm saying, but the mindset is still there. So I know this Thanksgiving, I mean this Christmas, I'm not going to drink anything, and I've already sized it up. I found a little uh, place right here to get my crab at. I ain't got to go way out there. Right here on, you know, y'all know what's that little Chinese place that got live crab and thing. That was my biggest thing, finding fresh crab. I didn't want to drive way down there. So I just took the little shit, made it big, and, and, and kind of stressed myself out a bit. Shit. Then you invited all these people over. How you go? This family member, of course. But I thought about it. So I just go do it and just be done with it. But I just want to mention that because we're reading this morning about the uh, judging other people. You know, I didn't never shake and all that stuff. You know, I didn't have to have no beer. You know what I'm saying? Like people be, you know, I used to go buy cigarettes 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. People buying alcohol and stuff like that. You know, I had it all fucked up. You know what I'm saying? I, I just, you know, I just what, didn't want to just say I'm the same as that guy right there. But I bet you that guy right there ain't never had a death view out either. So, well, I'm just out there. I'm rambling now. Okay. I'm done. Thanks, Freddie. Gerard is an alcoholic. Hey, I can't get over this judgment that constantly judging people. You know, I was on walking in, in the parking lot today and looking at everybody and making the judgments. Look at that guy. Look at this woman. You know, what are they? What are they thinking? You know, and it's, it's my character defects. It's my my problem in my head. And it's nothing to drink over, that's for sure. But I'll be honest, I can't, I can't, I'm judging my God. Because it's like, when am I going to get that spiritual feeling? And the other day it was amazing. You know, I was sitting here in the parking lot up there and parked it, and there were two beers just sitting there, glass bottles, and I collect things like that going for going to the uh, recycle place. And I picked them up, and one of them was full, a full 12-ounce beer. And I'm 
asking God, this is the sign you're, you're giving me? I don't understand, Father. What do you want me to do? And a, a voice came in my head. He said, wow, I want you to stare at that, Gerard. I want you to just look at that because that's your disease. That's how close you are to giving up. You're almost six months now. On January the 8th, I'll have six months of sobriety. I haven't been this sober since 14, 15 years old, from what I remember. And, you know, so I brought it up in the meeting after the speaker spoke. He was a dynamic speaker. He had all this fire in him. And he said, I bet you guys are wondering why I have all this fire in me. And then when I spoke at my turn, I said, well, I know why you have that fire in you. It's the Holy Spirit. That's why you're so much on fire. And I told him my story about those two, those two glass bottles. And, you know, I told him about that and about how I prayed about it. And I said, and by the way, I'm not going to drink. I'm not drinking that beer. I'm going to pour it out. And I did pour it out that night. And my dog was in the car, and she was just like so happy, you know, when I poured that out. Dogs have spirits, they do. And I told my ex-wife that, the one I live with, in a room for rent. She's like, you really poured it out? I go, look, it's on the ground right there. You know, I, I showed her the, the, the suds of it. She's like, okay, great. I said, I can't drink that beer. I know, I know how close it'll ruin my sobriety. And then I told my sponsor, I had a meeting that night with him, and he really told me a good analogy. He said, well, you know, Gerard, that is your God talking to you because he's telling you that if you would have drank that beer, that empty bottle tells you that's how empty your soul would become. You'd be empty again spiritually. And I thought about that. Wow, that's so true. I'd be empty inside if I drank that beer. Even though it's just one 12 ounce Budweiser, though it's a five, you know, 5.1. I would have got a little buzz on that, slamming it. I haven't drank in six months almost. I probably would have got a buzz. <laughs> but would it have been worth it? No. No, no, it wouldn't have been worth it because I know, as Freddie's saying, it's so true. Once we drink that one beer, then it's like, where's the next one? Where's the tall boy that I used to get? Where's the 12 pack? Where's the case? And with the case, where's that half pint of vodka that I used to slam down? Especially during the holidays. Or brandy with my eggnog. You know, my brother's coming over for Christmas, and he's a drinker. And I bought some ginger ale this time, and that's what I'm going to drink for Christmas, ginger ale. And, you know, nobody's going to say, well, what's in your glass? Well, I got ginger ale over ice. There's, oh, it's your drink? It's my toast. Here's my toast. And that's how I'm going to approach that. And he already knows I'm in Alcoholic Anonymous. I don't think he's going to go any further than that. He understands, and so does all my family. They're not going to judge me while they're drinking their wine. But thank you, Freddie, for bringing that up. And thank you, everybody in this group. You know, you guys... You're my therapist. I have a therapist now, but I can come here and get therapy. Thank you. And don't drink, don't drink this Christmas, please. We pray for everybody. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Come straight down. You're lawful. You're in my way.
Yeah, and then of course, uh, well, well, you know, we already know we we we, we got out of town. Man, uh, wonderful news, huh? Got to get a locker. Yeah. Hallelujah! Get a locker. <laughs> We're looking for one. The other thing is, we need our own uh, our own sign up there on that wall. Yep. You know, right there. Yep. And I guess we have to get it approved from them. Right. From the steering committee. Easy. 9 a.m. Fully closed, right mind. And 8.30 on Saturday. 8.30. That's your signature. Oh, 8.30 Saturday meeting? No. Yeah. We do yeah, yeah. 8.30 on Saturday. You know what they think? We have a men's meeting. No, no, no. That's not until 12.30. We have a 8.30 meeting on Saturday morning? Yeah. It's not a men's meeting. I know the guy that started it. Is it umbrella group? No. It's our group. I, we started it. Oh, I, I started it. Yeah, Keith. That was Keith's idea. Who, 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 yeah. You know, I used to come over here on Saturday because I knew somebody would show up and they would show up with court cards and I'd get them outside. Now, you know, we don't have to worry about that. We should have a women's meet. Yeah, right after that. Yeah, right after that. Uh, who got the key? Oh, okay. I need to get the big book. I got hands. I need to get the big book. didn't tell me who it was, but uh, when I seen Steve, I recognized him. I, I couldn't remember his name, just his face, and, and, and we met somewhere here in the room. I, I'm not, I don't think I heard his story, but I'm, I'm just glad that he's here to share his strength and hope with us this morning. So, so without further ado and everything else, I'm going to introduce our speaker for today, and so I'll give you Steve. I'm Steve Wood. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hey, Steve. You know, and, and I say I'm, I'm a recovered alcoholic because that's the fact. That's what happened to me is all the steps, and that's what the big book tells me in the first in the title page that we can be recovered from this disease. Um, that's not to set myself apart from the group. That's just to show newcomers that this is what can happen. It's not to be cured. It just means that the obsession that drives you to blindly to use that you thought could never go away that will tell you it never go away can happen and so the so you know the old saying a hey, don't lead to the miracle happens and that's true we're all miracles in the world. <coughs> you know all of us right here and you know it's every uh for the last 11 years or 11 years longer than that uh 14 years i've been doing a, a big book study at dbr and um do with my sponsors and doing it for years and it's been there since like 80, 85 and I always tell the guys there that they're miracles and I ask them when they go to bed at night to look themselves in the mirror and ask them why they're still here because some, because our natural state is to be drunk or, or loaded either you know, whatever your thing is and it, it's, it's there's a reason why we're still here and, it, and it's up to us to discover that and you know I mean I just driving over here I was just like thinking that you know the steps make life so much more easier you know and it took me years to figure the steps out you know I went to AA and not A for years you know but you know the spirituality that it gives you is so simple and so easy to make life easy but you got you know you got to put it in you got to do the work and you know the the thing is is when I was trying to figure out like and it kind of ties in with me as a kid is um, what's you know what true spirituality is like you know and I realized that when I was um, being a stay-at-home dad for my uh, my daughter and I do it for my son too and uh, she's eight now and he's two so it's like when I watched them especially her at a young age you know she would break something or, or she would get mad angry 
and she forget about in 30 seconds. We get angry, hold on it for 30 years, right? I watch them get mad, I mean break something, and say, sorry I broke it. We get angry, we plot, we get revenge, we harm, and we hold on to the guilt for 30 years. And then they get fear, and they come right to you, and they say, I'm scared. You watch a movie with them, they're like, I'm scared, you know? They voice it. We get scared, and you know, and they, they say, Daddy, I'm scared. We get scared. We don't go to our father like we should. We sit there and we hold on and suppress fear, and it takes us from going from point A to point B in different places, and it really, it keeps us way out in the future where we don't need to be. And looking back and seeing them, I, it, it took me to realize, looking at them, that I was the same way as a kid. I remember asking my mom, and she said that, well, my, your, you know, your, your brother's a straight, was a straight student. He never got in trouble. Your sister was more, you know, precocious, so to speak, you know, and, and, but none of them did drugs. And she's not, none of them were a problem, but they were horrible kids. You were the only kid that was good, but you're a horrible teenager, <laughs> you know. And basically, I, I believe that we all have this spirit that we're, that we're born with. And I think somewhere along the line, it's, it's probably around the time we start to change, you know, teenagers, so to speak. And we start getting more you know, hormones, more emotional, more this or that. We're gonna find a way to, to feel better. And um, I've talked to my brother, and he never did drugs, never did alcohol. And he said the worst time of his life was high school. And I go, well, that was, a, that was fun for me, but I, I was drunk the whole time, you know. And the thing is, is you can go do that. You can find a way to suppress those emotions going to yourself. But if but if you have that that allergy that Big Book talks about in you we're screwed. We're going to be alcoholic. And so it's like some people can get away with going and drink to feel better, but they're not going to wind up in Mexico then, you know, three days later. You know, they're not going to wind up in jail. They're not going to do the same thing when they get out of jail the next day. You know, I had friends that have gone to jail and stopped for good. I, then I have people like, you know, friends like, just like me that get out of jail and, get, and go back to jail the same day. You know, so it's like basically with me was, that, the one thing that did, that, that started to mess with me as a kid was, um, at a young age I was told I was dyslexic and I had auditorial problems. And also that ADD. So I was like, tell my mom, don't tell anyone about that, but it separated me from people because I didn't want to talk to anybody. Then as I got older, my parents sent me to a shrink and I was told I was manic depressant, you know, low self-esteem, had, uh, self-pity and my anger would go up and down you know nowadays they call it bipolar you know and and again it was the same thing I felt separated from people again and the older I got I started feeling separation from God and I would feel that separation with alcohol and again if I was didn't have that alcoholism the allergy I could probably you know just fill that up a little bit and be on my way for a couple days and not drink at all but when I started filling that in, and 16 years old, and I, it wasn't the first time I drank, but it was when I discovered alcohol. I never forget, I went to a party, and I drank, and all of a sudden, the universe transformed. I knew a new freedom, a new happiness. You know, a lot of the promises in the book are true for alcohol, too. You know, we know new freedom, new happiness, you know, uh, we have a feeling of use, usefulness, but it's only temporarily, you know. You know, only two things in life ever gave me ease and comfort, a whole, a whole lot of alcohol and drugs, or a whole lot of God, you know. And I say, you know, drugs are my story, but so is God. And that's what's important, you know. I mean, the thing is, 
when I was 17 years old, and, you know, I'm not much of a drunk log guy, but I'm just trying to run through it quick. It's like, when I was 17, my dad came up to me. I was 18. And he said, got out of high school. He said, either you get a full-time job, join the Army, go to college, or get the, you know, get the F out. Well, I decided to, join, to follow the Grateful Dead around the country. Like a good kid, you know. And that was, that was, that was definitely a long, strange trip. You know, I mean, I went to my first Dead shows, like, at 86 when I was 16, and, and it I got captivated by the music and stuff like that, but the fellowship there. They have a, I mean, everyone's on, you know, has on acid and stuff, and some people aren't, but it's like a very common fellowship of kindness and stuff, and people look out for each other. And it's the first fellowship I knew. It was the first time in my life I've ever had people, I felt like my, someone had me by my back, you know what I mean? And I, I, by the time I was 18, I knew what my dad was talking to me. He might as well have been going, wah, wah, wah. I'm, I was ready to take off and jump on, the, you know, and they had the, the 88 the Dead had a summer solstice tour, we call it was called, and that I went on the whole tour that summer, and I knew it was, it was I was done, you know. But the one thing about going on the tour, you know, going around the country with 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 following that group was, I would get in a, get in a car with some friends who you know had jobs, had a car, and I would wind up with like the deepest darkest guys coming back, and you know the Dead. For you don't know the Deadhead world, there's hippies and there's Wookies. And the hippies are like you know, kind of normal hippies, and the Wookies are the ones with the big dreadlocks, and you know they might they look like they've been homeless, you know, pretty much. I would wind up with those guys because all my friends would kick me out, and my friends drank and did drugs, but not like me. I was wholly different than what they did. They did. They could only keep up with me for so long, and you know, I remember just like coming back from shows and scraping the bag of pills and grounding them up and and drinking, you know, pouring all the. Normal people don't do that. And by 95, when the Jerry Garcia died, the guy was a singer of the dead, um, all my friends, I've been to rehab three times by then. You know, twice, once for the parents, once for the girl, once kind of for myself. He died, and I watched my friends that I hung out with the dead world cut their dreadlocks off, go to, go to call, and just stop using, stop drinking. And I watched all of them do that. And I said, well, hey, maybe I can do that. But I couldn't. So I, that was the first time I went to rehab where I asked someone to go. And I remember I got out. I went back to live with my parents. And they had no, my parents had no idea what an alcoholic and addict is like. They have no idea. They're like, they've been married 50, you know, three years and right now. And they're from old school. They, my, my dad's missed the drug scene by about five years. And he's very old school, John Wayne, loving guy, you know. And when I came back to live with them and I went to rehab, I remember I was getting lots of good stuff out of it, you know, you know, a bed to live in, three, you know, three hots, you know, and some maybe money if I did some work. And I remember using, you know, drinking again and going back and tell my parents I go into meetings and stuff. Vaguely remember that. And I would went to rehab again, a few times. Wound up going seven times in all. But the you know the thing was is is I I looked at those friends of mine and I realized I wasn't normal all of a sudden because even though they drank like with me, and they just stopped and just like changed their lives. I couldn't do that, and that's why I realized something was wrong. Um, I had health problems. I remember going to a doctor, and he told me, it talks in the big book about it, it talks about warning of a doctor, cannot stop you. I went to the doctor, and he said, seven years, you'll have cirrhosis. All I heard was seven years. 
I didn't hear. It's like going to court and the judge telling you, oh, well, you know, we want to see you again in five months. You're like, yeah, five months, you know, I can keep doing what I'm doing. Well, he, he said seven years you have cirrhosis. I'm like, oh. he said, all I heard was seven years. That's all I heard. And that's the type of, that's the way my obsession with alcohol works. And it was 1996. I, let, me, let me tell you something. Is I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to other fellowships, mostly primary <laughs> AA. And I basically sat in the corner and did nothing. I sweep the floors. I cleaned the toilets. I did the coffee. I never got more than three months clean. I never got past the third step. And there's a deep reason why I never got past that third step. And I just, I'm sitting in meetings. My life's still unmanageable. I still got resentments flowing through my head. I'm a dry drunk. I'm angry. I'm pissed off. And I have an obsession that wants me to get loaded. And eventually I would just give in to it. Um, that was the most miserable time of my life. I felt better when I was out there. Because um, there's nothing worse than, than being a dry drunk. There's nothing worse, and especially if, if the only anesthetic you know, the thing that helps you, is alcohol. And I'm the type of person that I'm going to go back to what I know. This foreign stuff over here, this God stuff, that's, you know, I, don't, I didn't experience it yet, so it's just a theory. And so in 96, I, I went to a meeting at Pleasant High School, wasn't on the schedule, and these two guys were doing a book study, Don Brown Terry Bourne. And I walked into the meeting, and all these guys have desk and stuff they're sitting on and these two guys are up there with a projector and writing on the board and I walk into the meeting I walk back outside and tell my friend I said this is an AA this is like uh, adult ed and he goes, get up. he goes get back in there and shut up I sat down and I listened to these guys and they were breaking on doctor's opinion in the book people like 60 people raised their hand to sponsorship that night I was like wow because I thought you had to be like sworn in or ordained to be a sponsor and it was you know I just didn't understand. I was in AA and recovery my whole life. I didn't understand it. I was like at the Wizard of Oz standing by the gate, you know. I didn't know that there was something beyond being a dry drunk. I thought, why are these people must be miserable? they got 20 years. But then I would hear these funny guys talk from the big book. I would hear these funny guys talk that were happy. I thought maybe my, I wrote them off as not alcoholic. That's the way my, my mind worked. That's the way my obsession told me. That was the way of telling it that this doesn't work. And when I heard these guys speak, I got a sponsor. He took me to the third step, but he, they really hammered home this allergy obsession that this, I have this obsession that's, that's going to give me a reoccurring thought of drinking. It doesn't respond to reason. And I have this allergy that when I put alcohol in my body, I want more. That's why Big Book calls it phenomena craving. And there's nothing worse than having uh, a mindful of recovery and a little bit of recovery and a body full of alcohol. Because I remember drinking one night, it was like the fourth time I drank after that relapse, and I was drinking, and I could feel that, the allergy kicking in. And I went, because it didn't, I didn't sit there and go, I'm going to drink, see if that allergy is for real. I remember just drinking one night, and all of a sudden, it was just coming up on me. And I was like, whoa. And that's when I truly realized, even though I knew for years I was an alcoholic, I, I knew right then I was an alcoholic. I knew right then. And I spent four years running um, I didn't care if I died. I didn't care who I hurt. I lost my family. I lost my parents. They changed, everyone changed the locks. I had a restraining order against me. I was, when I, I was living in my car, I had nothing. And um, I started, you know, the rest started piling up on me. And um, I had a little bit of, of a short job working for Nabisco, but it was kind of a fluke. I went to a job fair drunk and they hired me. 
I was looking for my sister in the job fair. I was waiting in the car. I think I passed out. And I went inside, and the guy goes, you look for a job? And I'm like, oh, yeah. I worked there for like three months, and then I got hurt. And I got, a, you know, that's when, like, you know, pills came in, too. And I got really messed up on that. And the alcohol was one thing. But that's, all that got me here. And at 30, I knew what I needed to do. I needed to hunt down these big book thumping guys. And I wound up, wound up going to meetings to their houses. I wound up meeting people that just talk differently, live differently. And I got a sponsor. I picked the happiest guy in the room. And it's kind of a funny story. I was looking at this Don Brown guy. I couldn't find him. I asked people where he was. And so one night I'm in a meeting, I picked the happiest guy in the room. Coincidentally, his sponsor was Don Brown. I go and I go to his house and I start going to these book studies. And these guys start, like the, like the night we did the third step, they're like, all right, drop your knees. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? And all these guys dropped their knees. And I remember them hearing doing the third step through the room. And they were talking and praying for it, even though it wasn't their third step, they were doing it for me. They were doing it like they were like cancer patients, begging for life. And I remember sitting there going, this is for real. This, is, this isn't a joke, you know. But I'm going to flip back real quick to the first step. When I, re- you know, I realized I had that, it wasn't, a, it wasn't hard to realize I had that. And the, the second step was the hardest one because I grew up Catholic. I did everything Catholic. I went to Catholic school for eight years. When you go out to school, you do everything. I, I was an altar boy. I did first communion, confirmation. Confirmation is when you get anointed and you're supposed to be, you know, fully uh, Christian then. And um, I did all that stuff. I did confession. Confession is not a, a, a volunteer thing. They make you go. I remember going and making up stuff. And then when I started having real stuff to confess, I'm not telling that, dude. You know, the same thing with, with the, the therapist I went to. You know, and it's funny because years later I go to AA and I tell my guy, I'm telling the whole story for free. You know, but it's like um, I skipped all that stuff. And then my mom told me, if you don't pray, you go to hell. And that God, if, if, you, if you're bad, bad, God punishes you. So I was scared of this God that was, I thought was up here in a long white beard, hiding up in the clouds, following me around. So I told that to my sponsor. He looked at me and laughed. And he goes, why don't you write down the God you want? And I wrote down, I want a God that's loving, kind, considerate, patient, blah, blah, blah. And most of all, I wrote on there, I want a God that loves me no matter what I do. And when I did that third step, I just did it, you know, to kind of turn my life over the steps. That's what my sponsor told me to do, to see what, and at first I was like, is this a trick? You know, because I still didn't have that God thing, but the big book talks about, on page 55, about God being within me. And that's shattered. Page 55 says, Deep down, every man, woman, child is a fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, which is chaos, by pomp, which is pride, or by worship of other things. We know what that is. And then it says, we found, they, they found the great reality of God within them. So I started going, it gave me hope. I didn't all of a sudden become, you know, spiritual. But my, my sponsor explained to me, you turn your will life for the care of God, it's the second the pen hits the paper in step four. And that's the results of your life being over to God. I started to do that. I wrote a deep fourth step. I did a fist. My fist step went 14 hours long. Um, I left things out of my fist step. I called my sponsor later that night. Told him I did. I thought he would pick me up the next day or a week later. He picked me up that night at 1 o'clock in the morning. We went back to his house and finished it off. I went and did my six and seven that hour afterwards. And, and something happened. All I could say is in that hour... Something propelled me to drop to my knees, put my hands out, and just say, I'll do whatever, I think I said, whatever the F you want. 
You know, it's not really the way to talk to God. That's why it did. I was screaming. And I was, I, here's the way I look at it. It's like, you know, when you're a kid, someone puts an arm behind your back and wants you to beg, what do they have to beg for? Mercy, right? <laughs> but who was pulling the arm behind my back? I was. And that's what I realized. And this big book talks about entirely ready to let God remove everything we admitted is objectable. You know, the step on the wall says, just says, uh, have God remove our defects. But the big book says, Everything we admit is objectable. Can you now take away every one? It's not just a few of them. It's everything. It's, it's letting go. And my sponsor explains it very well. He says the sixth step is like the monkey in the nut. Like a monkey in the nut. And it's like where the, in Madagascar, they take a coconut and they drill a hole in it and they put a peanut in that hole. And they put the, and they put the uh, peanut out, out in the woods and the monkey comes out there, puts his hand into the coconut and get that peanut, but he can't get his hand out because it's only big enough to get his hand in, not with the nut in his hand. He sees the, the trapper come behind him, but he won't let go of that nut, even though he's going to lose his freedom. And there's female monkeys out there, there's bananas, there's a whole forest. But he will not let go of that nut, even though he loses freedom. We are the exact same way. We'll hold on to that resentment, we'll hold on to that pride, we'll hold on to that fear, and we'll, even though it might kill us. And we're the exact same way until we let go. And it says in the book, entirely ready to let God. And that's why it says, you know, let go. And like, God, I was looking at it saying that I can't, he can, I need to let him. And that's kind of like what I always had to remind myself. When I did that six, and I sat there and pleaded and asked God to let it go, this, here's what happened was this. All that committee in my head was like shut off. It was like someone turned the volume down. It's not like that all the time. But that moment, something happened. And then I felt, years later I realized how I felt. It's the same way when my... I put my son when he was a baby or my daughter on my chest and it kind of lay there with you and you feel like you're one with them. I felt like I was like something like that. It was a spiritual experience and I needed that to happen. I needed to feel something other than me. And, any, you know, I was told years ago, anything in life you know is from experience. Anything else is a theory. So if I don't experience like this alarm club, never been here before, I'm going to develop theories in my head what it's going to be like. Maybe from other people. You know, but once I go here, I know it. So if I can, if I experience God in some little or big way, I'm going to start to get knowledge. And that's kind of like what happened. I started believing and went, I went from belief to knowledge and I started making amends left and right. I went to a few days after doing my fist up, I discussed things in my fist up about what separated me from my father for almost eight years. I'm at his door making amends to him and my mom. Uh, I had places I stole from. I went to those places with cash in hand. With, and I didn't question myself because I didn't want to do it, but I didn't question what I was doing, if that makes sense. I had uh, ex-girlfriends had restraining orders on me. I went to their house. Matter of fact, one of them I saw, I remember she looked out the window when I walked up, and then she answered the door, and her big boyfriend came up to see what I was doing, blah, blah, blah. And years later, I saw her in AA. And I sat down with her and talked to her for a little bit, and I saw her again, and I said, hey, I'm going to ask you a question. Why didn't you call the cops on me that day when you, saw me? you looked out the window? And she said, because you were non-threatening. And I went, wow. So that's why you start to realize that you're different. You transform somewhere. You know, I, I, went to, I, I got to make amends to my grandma who passed away and had a whole bizarre experience within that. And it's a beautiful thing to make amends to people that we don't think we can ever make amends to. You know, um, I was able to make amends to family members left and right. I was able to go back to the state of Oregon, which I thought I was banned from for life. It turned out it was nothing. 
I was able to make amends about any everything, everyone I hurt, everyone I took from. I went to friends that, I went to uh, drug dealers' houses. That's you know, believe it or not, they tell you not to go those places. But I, I I know what I needed to do. And I went to everywhere I possibly I, I needed to go. To to be free, my sponsor would. I asked my sponsor. I say, "Do I really need to make this amends?" He wouldn't say yes or no. He would say, "How free do you want to be?" And all I know is, I started doing step ten. When I, at that time of my recovery, I had a um, almost looked like one of these. What was a ten step sheet? Looked like an uh, inventory sheet. And I have that in my pocket. Other pocket, I have my amends sheet. And I would go there wherever I went. I went to three meetings a day for my first four years of recovery. I went to Congress Fellowship six forty five. Sunnyvale meeting Wall Creek, and then whatever I want at night, Don Brown's house and all those guys. And I did that for a long time, and so I started sponsoring, because it takes up all your time. I still go, to, and to this day, I, I you know still sponsor. I sponsor a DVR, I sponsor a co-house over here, I sponsor here, I sponsor wherever, wherever. I don't turn anyone away. I don't turn, I don't care what they've done. I, I sponsor non-addicts, non-alcoholics. I sponsored, uh, I took, what, took my brother through a fourth step. Just, just a fourth step because he needed it. I suggested it to him. The fact of the matter is, remember I told you that when I did my fifth step, I thought my, my, my old conception of God was God was punishing. When I did my fifth step, I realized I was punishing. I was wrathful. I, was, I, I took it away. I was angry. I was mean. And around step 10, I started to take on the characteristics of, the, the, of that God I wanted. And I realized that that God loved me no matter what I did. And that was the most beautiful thing I ever, I ever realized. You know, today I try to live a life. Uh, people go, I watch people who got 20 years that I came up with from the Don Browns and all that. And I see them go back out at 20 years because they let up on what they were doing. I don't have a feeling of letting up. I love what I do. And I see some of these guys too that got 20 years and they used to, sponsor guys left and right and it kind of sinkled down a little bit and I you know I, I do um, Monday night's always open for me I go to whatever meeting I want Tuesday night I've been doing a book study for you know 14 years DVR Wednesday night I have a, a twice a month I do uh, we do a reunion meeting from retreat I went to Thursday night I started recovery ministry Friday night's involved recovery ministry Saturday night's once a month got a meeting and I do Crisios and I do Kairos, and Kairos is the prison ministry. And that's one of the coolest things you ever do in your life. And both of those um, things are absolutely incredible. If you haven't done a Crisio, even if you're not religious, go check it out. It's one of the most beautiful. I didn't want to go. I turned it down for years, and when I went, it's just a pool of love. It's absolutely incredible. And it, but it's not my program. I watch guys come there from AA, and they stop doing the steps and start doing that. And guess what happens to them? They start drinking again. It's my service. I go there and serve teams. So anyways, I'm going to, uh, you know, stop up from there. Just, just want to say do the steps and trust God. Thanks. Okay. Just want to say thanks to Steve for sharing that with us. Now it's time for us to uh, practice our seventh tradition.